Over 2 billion people today believe in the teaching of transubstantiation. But the question is, is this what Christ intended when he gave the Last Supper, or is this a great error because of tradition? Today we're going to look at scripture and history as our guide to learn the truth. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me today. My name is Tudor Alexander, and I'm your host, as always. Thanks for being here. Today, we're jumping into a little bit of a different topic. Usually on Wednesdays, I do my news updates. So if you were expecting some news, then just hang out for next week. I'll get back on the saddle with that. I had a few people ask me about the topic of transubstantiation. And I've actually wanted to do a deep dive on this for quite a while. So here it is. Today, we're going to be going into a very, very deep look at transubstantiation, and it's going to be hopefully very edifying and very educating for you. Now, this topic is a very big topic. It's very important uh, for two reasons. Primarily because on the Catholic and Orthodox side, it's a salvation issue, right? So ultimately, it's something that is not a fringe topic. It's not something that's splitting hairs on doctrine, but rather something very critical, And, of course, it affects a lot of people. There are over a billion Catholics, I believe, in the world. There are almost a billion Orthodox, especially if you count the Eastern churches. I think there's more than that. And there's almost 100 million Lutherans in the world. So you put it all together, and it's, you know, looking at easily a fourth of the world's population currently that believes in this, which is an enormous amount of people. Now, whether they're fully aware of what it implies or what it means, that's a different story. But nevertheless, that's how many people are taught transubstantiation. That's how many people espouse it as part of their belief systems one way or another. So today we're going to take a little bit of a break from news and really focus in on this core issue because ultimately we want to look at this in an unbiased way. I don't want to give you any bias. I want to look as usual at the facts, at the research. I don't have an agenda here. I have, I'm not a part of any denomination, but ultimately I care about the truth. And I care that you learn about the truth as well. Now, this is going to be a longer episode. So very likely you'll have to use the page breaks or whatever they're called, the subject matter breaks at the bottom that I list. So if you need to watch this in parts, then do so using the page breaks. Hopefully that'll help you because this is, we're going to get into a lot of deep things. But ultimately, again, my goal is for you to be very educated and empowered once we finish with this episode so that you really can walk away on this topic very educated and understand what's going on from both sides, understand how to have a conversation with anybody who believes in transubstantiation and and how to present the truth. Really, that's what it's about. Now, disclaimer here really quick. This is, the first disclaimer is this is not about communion. Communion is something we're going to talk about towards the end of this episode, but communion is a Christian practice of having fellowship and breaking bread, sharing in that experience with one another with your mind set on Christ and your gratitude for Christ's work. Communion is something that is central to the Christian life, whether that's communion at church with other believers, communion with Christ himself, communion through prayer, communion with one-on-one deep talks with your Christian friends. All those are forms of communion. Now, in the Eastern and Western churches, 
Communion is often conflated with the Eucharist. So this is a very important point to keep in mind. I'm not talking about <clears throat> communion as a, you know, as something like you're having fellowship with another Christian. If if you have that, that's great. Breaking bread, having fellowship, all these are biblically-based practices and historically-based practices. But again, if you're Catholic or Orthodox, the difference between communion and Eucharist is not immediately obvious. And so my goal today, if you are Catholic or Orthodox, is that you walk away with a clearer distinction between those two things, hopefully. The second disclaimer that I want to point out is that it, this is not about bashing Catholics or Orthodox or Lutherans or anybody who holds to transubstantiation. It's not about bashing anybody. I have no agenda. I have nothing against Catholics even though I speak against the Catholic Church and the Jesuits and all the things that the Bible warns us about in a lot of my episodes, of course. But that's very different than being against Catholic people. I went to Catholic schools. I went to a Jesuit high school, believe it or not. Uh, you know, I, I grew up Eastern Orthodox. So I'm, <clears throat> I was president of my youth group at church. I was an altar boy, very involved in, in organized religion. And I have Catholic friends so this is not about Catholic, Catholics, Catholics, but rather the truth. It's about the truth and it's about understanding what is really at the heart of this and what are the implications of this belief. Because, again, this is not intended to insult anybody, but we do care about what the truth is because the truth has vast implications, especially on this particular topic. This is, again, this is not a fringe topic. It's not splitting hairs. It's a very serious topic with serious implications. So we want to make sure to get it right. If if you're Catholic or Orthodox, I invite you to listen to this all the way through, to consider all the things I'm presenting, and to simply look at it. It's not about being against anybody. It's really a just consider the evidence and use right judgment. Consider the evidence. That's what we have to look at is always evidence for our beliefs. And God wants you to have evidence, plenty of it. If you're not Catholic or Orthodox, then my goal is to empower you to have a productive dialogue with people who do believe in transubstantiation so that you understand what it's teaching, what are the implications, and ultimately you're empowered to defend the view that rejects transubstantiation. Now again, I don't have an agenda, but my goal is the truth. And as you could probably already tell from the nature of the name of this video and my tone, I do not believe in transubstantiation. I was raised Eastern Orthodox. I went to Catholic schools. I did that whole song and dance. And I'm here to, to with you today, before you today, to tell you that it's not the truth. And I'm going to spend the next however long, however it's going to be an hour and a half, two hours, who knows, to prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt why it's not true, and why it's a very dangerous belief to have. What what are the implications? Now, the, the origin of this whole theory or teaching, I should say doctrine, dogma, however you want to call it, because at the end of the day, it's not true, but the origin of it comes from a few places, and particularly the Last Supper, and also where Jesus talks about being he's the bread of life in John 6. We're going to read a few passages just to get the basis for this. John 6, verse 51 through 55. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. 
If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So there's the kind of the communion piece of it. Or so Orthodox and Catholics think. So this, this we're going to read John 6 all the way through, almost the whole chapter later, because you need context and you need proper interpretation principles. We're going to build a lot of context today so that you can read these things with fresh eyes and to determine what did the author, in this case Christ is mostly the speaker here, what did the author intend for us to understand? That's really important. But the second one is from the Last Supper. There's a lot of verses like this, but this one's from Luke, uh, chapter 22, verse 19 through um, 20. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you in the new covenant, in my blood. So Last Supper, plus some things on the bread of life from John 6, this basically is what underpins the teaching of transubstantiation. Now, we're going to get to official definitions of what it is and, you know, various things from all different churches, from both um, Orthodox and Catholic. And we're going to look at Lutherans too a little bit later today. But here's the deal. Here's what it comes down to and why this is so important. Either, number one, the Catholics are right and the Orthodox are right, and those who reject transubstantiation potentially are not saved, or it's a salvation issue, or they're missing out on a, on a crucial part of the Christian life. If the Catholics and Orthodox are right, then the Protestants are missing out on a very key component of Christian living. That's, that's very important. So we, now I don't identify as any particular denomination, but I do protest the teachings of the Catholic Church. And that's a whole other can of worms. But the point is this. Anybody who claims to be a Protestant or to not agree with institutionalized religion, you have to be darn sure that the reason you reject transubstantiation is very well grounded in Scripture and in history. You have to be darn sure, because if you if the Catholics are right, then this could be a serious issue that we're ignoring. So this is important to understand. Now, conversely, if the Catholics and Orthodox are wrong— then they have constructed an entire theology around something that is completely contradictory to the Bible and, quite frankly, I mean this with no insult, has blasphemous implications. So the stakes are extremely high for this particular dogma or teaching or doctrine or theory. Let's put it that way. So one of the two has to be correct. They both can't be correct. And this is why, this is one of the reasons why the Reformation happened. It was one of the major splits, because this is a serious issue. Now, if the Catholics and Orthodox are wrong about this, then at the very least, transubstantiation, we could say, dishonors Christ. It really does, if you're wrong about it. And it puts your faith ultimately in worldly things. It, it hinges salvation, or your faith, or 
communion with God on something in the physical world, which is not at all what the Bible aims to teach you, because the Bible is about spiritual things. And God is spirit, and we have a spiritual relationship with him. Now, at the most, the highest consequence of that teaching, and of course, it's a spectrum, depending on who you talk to and how this is manifested, but the highest consequence is that ultimately you're, you're hinging salvation on something material. I have heard priests say that unless you get communion, you can't be saved, or you're not saved, or you lose your salvation if you stop getting communion, which is the Eucharist. But again, communion, there, there's a distinction there, which is very important. Uh, again, I hope you, if you are Catholic or Orthodox, you will come away from this episode empowered and edified to understand that there is a distinction between those two things. But my goal is going to be to back up all of this. So again, I invite you to stick through it. This will probably be, again, probably a little bit longer episode, but use the timestamps. And hopefully you'll see why this is such an important issue, regardless of your position on this. You'll, you'll, today, my goal is that you walk away with an understanding and appreciation of the importance of this issue. Because if you've watched my end time series, it may become an issue in the future, and I'll just leave it at that. But now, how do we know which one is the truth? How do we know, are the Catholics and the Orthodox right, or the Protestants right? Which one, unless you're Lutheran, but which one is right? We'll get to Lutherans at the end of this, because we're going to look at everything first. Well, we have to rely on something that is 100% consistent and 100% true. Meaning, what is the source or standard that we can use that we know that if we compare it, we can see if it is true or not? And the only answer to that is the Bible. It is God's Word. Now, if you're a Catholic and if you're an Orthodox, you will say that tradition is equal to the Bible. But the problem with that is this. We know that God does not contradict himself. And if that's the case, then we can look at certain traditions and see if they are contradicting what God said in the Bible. If they're not contradicting, then probably God was guiding those things to occur and to happen. If they are contradicting the Bible, then you have a really tough cookie to solve because you have to ask yourself, is tradition always valid? And the answer, of course, is no. And we'll look at examples that where Christ rebuked the Pharisees for their rabbinic traditions that evolved basically after the, temp the first temple was destroyed and created this works righteousness religion with all sorts of additions and traditions of men. And Christ rebuked the Pharisees for that. So the question is, is Christianity immune from that? And obviously the answer is no, it's not. There are many traditions that do not fall in line with what the Word of God says. And this is why, again, one of the reasons the Reformation happened. We want to get back to the truth. What is the standard? The only one in the, the universe that can't lie, that can't make a mistake, that can't be inconsistent is God. So if we go by what God said and compare everything, then we have a perfect standard. So we have to use that. We'll have to look at history as well, because ultimately tradition contradicts the Bible in several instances. This is one of them. Transubstantiation is a great one. That's why I decided to make a whole presentation on it. But we're going to look at some important evidence, and ultimately, even if you're Catholic or Orthodox, probably you weren't aware of some of these things. So again, I invite you to stay with me. Now, the, the common rebuttal to this immediately is that, well, tradition gave us the Bible. 
this is very common rebuttal from Orthodox Christians, from priests, from Catholic priests, from Catholic apologists, is that, well, tradition gave us the Bible. How, how was the Bible created? It was the tradition of the scribes that were passing it down, the oral tradition. And yes, that's true. That tradition resulted in a, eventually, a compiled text that that is now we call the Bible. That is true. However, proper distinctions are important. Tradition is a wide umbrella. If somebody did that before me, I'm going to do it. That's a tradition. But not all tradition is good. There are many traditions that are don't, don't make any sense with the Bible, that contradict what the Bible say, that are contrary to the Bible, that are senseless, that are just made up by men. So ultimately, if we say that all tradition is guided, then we are not using proper distinction. So when we say, well, the tradition gave us the Bible, yes, it's true, but not all traditions are equal. This is a very important point to understand. One of those traditions is transubstantiation. And I hope that you'll see today why it's contradictory to the Bible. Traditions of bringing the Bible through time through scribes is not the same as the kinds of traditions the Pharisees added to the Mosaic Covenant with their works righteousness and stipulations for how far you could walk on a Sabbath and all these different things. Those are teachings of men, and we are warned about such things throughout the New Testament. So today we're going to look at a lot of different things. We're going to look at blood decrees and atonement in the Old Testament. We're going to look at eating as a metaphor that is throughout the Bible. We're going to look at how the works of the church and whether or not they can be counted as fruits of the Spirit. What's the difference there? We're going to look at some logical problems. Um, we're also going to look at Lutherans towards the end, the Lutheran view of transubstantiation, which is, it's honestly very confusing, so we're not going to spend too much time on it, but it is important to understand. And it, that plays into some end time stuff as well, which I will mention. But you can also, we're also going to look at how to actually honor Christ's words, because obviously he did ask us to remember to do it in his name. And that's important. So obviously it is a command. It's something that he's asked us to do. So how can we honor his words and stay true to the meaning of the words rather than inventing our own meaning or interpreting it in a perhaps carnal way, a physical way. So we're going to look at all that today. Again, use the timestamps, and I hope that this will be edifying. I know that you will walk away much more educated and empowered from this. So let's get to it. The first thing I want to open up is with the actual teachings of the Catholic and Orthodox churches on transubstantiation. Now, this is from the Catholic Dictionary. It's from a Catholic culture website. Transubstantiation. Let's read on. We're going to do a lot of reading today, so brace yourselves. The complete change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood by a validly ordained priest during the consecration at Mass, so that only the accidents of the bread and wine remain. While the faith behind the term itself was already believed in apostolic times, the term itself was a later development. This is an assumption. This is a Catholic assumption, that the faith in this particular happening of this of transubstantiation was behind was believed in apostolic times meaning the 12 apostles this is an assumption very very important to understand but moving on with the eastern fathers before the sixth century the favorite expression was metaoisios change of being the latin tradition 
coined the term transubstantiatio, change of substance, which was incorporated into the creed of the Fourth Lateran Council in the 12th, uh, 13th century, 1215. The Council of Trent, in defining the, quote, wonderful and singular conversion of the whole substance of the wine into the blood of Christ, added, quote, which conversion of the Catholic Church calls transubstantiation. This was in 1652. After transubstantiation, the accents of bread and wine do not inhere in any subject or substance whatever. Yet they are not make-believe, they are sustained in existence by divine power. So there is a actual substantive change in what is happening here, which is the teaching of transubstantiation. This is from the Catholic Encyclopedia, and this talks about the sacrifice of the Mass, meaning the Mass is a sacrifice. It has to be a sacrifice in order for transubstantiation to uh, happen. And we're going to zoom all the way down because there's a lot to read here. We're not going to read it all, obviously. But we're going to zoom down to the metaphysical character of the sacrifice of the Mass. The physical essence of the Mass having been established in the consecration of the two species, meaning the, the uh, bread and the wine, the metaphysical question arises as to whether and in what degree the scientific concept of sacrifice is realized in the double consecration. Since the three ideas, sacrificing priest, sacrifice, sacrificial gift, sacrificial object, present no difficulty to the understanding, the problem is finally seen to lie entirely in the determination of the real sacrificial act. And indeed, not so much in the form of this act as in the matter, since the glorified victim, with the capital V, i.e. Jesus, he's the victim, in consequence of its impassibility, cannot be really transformed, much less destroyed. In their investigation of the idea of destruction, the post-Tridentine theologians have brought into play all their acuteness, often with brilliant results in having elaborated a series of theories concerning the sacrifice of the Mass, of which, however, we can discuss only the most notable and important. But first, we may have at hand a reliable critical standard wherewith to test the validity or invalidity of the various theories. We maintain that a sound and satisfactory theory must satisfy the following four conditions. So meaning, these are the four conditions that need to basically underpin any theory about transubstantiation because of the sacrifice, the mass is a sacrifice. Let's see, number one, the twofold consecration must show not only the relative, but also the absolute moment of sacrifice so that the mass will not consist in a mere relation, but will be revealed as in itself a real sacrifice. So the Mass is a real sacrifice. It has to be revealed that it is a real sacrifice. Number two, the act of sacrifice veiled in the double consecration must refer directly to the sacrificial matter, i.e. the Eucharistic Christ himself, not to the elements of bread and wine or to the unsubstantial species. Number three, the sacrifice of Christ must somehow result in a kenosis, not in a glorification. Keep this in mind. Very, very, very important. I'll read it again. The sacrifice of Christ must somehow result in a kenosis, meaning a shedding of glory, not in a glorification, since this latter is at most the object of the sacrifice, not the sacrifice itself. Since this postulated kenosis, however, can be no real but only a mystical or sacramental one, we must appraise intelligently those moments which approximate in any degree the mystical slaying to a real exonation instead of rejecting them. So we have to use sort of intuition to see when the right moment 
of the sacrifice would happen. So the mass is a sacrifice and it has to be a sacrifice and convey the feeling of a sacrifice in order for it to be truly a mass. This is the 13th council of 13th session of the Council of Trent. And we're going to read some stuff here. Chapter 1. First of all, the Holy Council teaches and openly and plainly professes that after the consecration of bread and wine, our Lord Jesus Christ, true God and true man, is truly and really and substantially contained in the August sacrament of the Holy Eucharist under the appearance of these sensible things. So Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, is contained in these physical things. See if I had something else. Yeah, I did have something else. Canon number one of chapter eight, Council of Trent. Canons on the Most Holy Sacrament of the Eucharist. Canon one, if anyone denies that in the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist are contained truly, really substantially the body blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, which you are consuming, and consequently the whole Christ, but says that he is in it only as a sign or a figure or force, let him be anathema. Now, of course, according to the Catholics, there's no salvation for you outside the Catholic Church, so this is a salvation issue. You see how this works? This is a salvation issue. So this was Council of Trent. Now let's move to list of excommunicable offenses from the Council of Trent. Same thing, kind of, but just different perspective. This is on Wikipedia, but this is sacraments, by the way. This is from the sacraments subsection. If anyone saith that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary unto salvation, but superfluous, and that without them or without the desire thereof men obtain of God through faith alone, the grace of justification, though all the sacraments are not needed necessary for every individual, let him be anathema, i.e., in simpler, less English, old English talk, if you believe that justification and salvation is by faith alone and that you do not need to perform sacraments to be saved, then you are a heretic. You are excommunicated. You, you have been kicked out of the Catholic Church, i.e. there's no salvation for you in their minds. So keep all this in mind because we're going to look at what the Word says. And the question is, again, if you're still with me and you're a Catholic or Orthodox, you have to ask yourself, what do you do with that? We're going to get to the Orthodox in just a second. What do you do with this? When the teaching of the Catholic Church tells you that we do not basically condone that salvation is by faith alone, you have to do sacraments. And the Bible tells you the opposite. How do you reconcile those two? Either you have to say that the Bible is not the inspired word of God and, you know, traditions that men came up with later as the church evolved, those are superior to the word of God. So you have to diminish the value of the Bible in order to justify the teachings of the church. That's really the only option in order to continue believing that. Because if you believe that God cannot lie and cannot contradict himself, then obviously one of the two is wrong. Either God did not inspire the Bible or God did not guide people to write such things that unless you take sacraments, you can't be saved. One of the two is wrong. So this is this is the point to keep remembering and to keep putting in your mind. But anyway, moving on. If anyone saith that the sacraments were instituted for the sake of nourishing faith alone, let him be anathema. So sacraments are essential to salvation, meaning you have to do these sacraments in order to be saved. Eucharist. 
If anyone denieth that in the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist are contained truly blood together with the soul, we read, we read this part from the Council of Trent. Here's another one. If anyone saith that in the sacred and holy sacrament of the Eucharist and substance of the bread and wine remains conjointly with the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and denieth that wonderful and singular conversion of the whole substance of the bread into the body and the whole substance of the wine into the blood, the species only of the bread and wine remaining, which conversion indeed the Catholic Church most aptly calls transubstantiation, let him be anathema, meaning excommunicated, kicked out, no salvation for you, it is a salvation issue, and if you know your history, you know what they did to heretics. But moving on, number five. If anyone saith either that the principal fruit of the most holy Eucharist is the remission of sins, or that other effects do not result thereof, let him be anathema. So if you take the Eucharist, then that is the forgiveness of sins. So forgiveness of sins is hinged on you taking the Eucharist into your body. And there are Orthodox that believe this as well. That once you take communion, oh, now my now I feel I'm forgiven. This is a very serious thing to address, my brothers and sisters. I really hope that a few Orthodox and Catholic ears will perk up to these things. I really do. Number six, if anyone saith that in the Holy Sacrament of the Eucharist, Christ, the only begotten Son of God, is not to be adored with worship, even external of Latria, and is consequently neither to be venerated, with a special festive solemnity, nor to be solemnly borne about in processions, according to the laudable and universal rite and custom of the Holy Church, or is not to be proposed publicly to the uh, people to be adored, and that the, the adorers thereof are idolaters, let him be anathema. Now, again, just to kind of translate this from Old English, if anybody says that you parading around a monstrance, which is a whatever, like a holder for the Eucharist and doing various ritualistic things with it and people are bowing down to it or kissing it or adoring it or venerating it, whatever you want to call it, that if you consider that idolatry, according to the second commandment, which, by the way, the Catholics took out and replaced it, moved everything up and split the 10th commandment into two, but we know why they did that. Ultimately, again, this is not about bashing Catholics, but you have to be aware of your history the second commandment on images was taken away by the Catholics. Why do you think that? But moving on, if anybody says that that's idolatry, that you're you're giving your prayer and your worship and your attention to a physical object, then you are a heretic. You are a heretic and you should be punished as a heretic, but there are other things we'll look at. So that's Wikipedia. Now this is an interesting book, and let's see if I can... Zoom in because this is a very interesting book. And this is called Dignities and Duties of the Priest. It was written originally in the 1600s, 1700s by a man named Liguori Alfonso Maria de Saint Liguori. And he was a Catholic. It was the, the purpose of the book was for retreats and ecclesiastical kind of rules of life and spiritual rules. But this is page... Uh, let's see, what page is this? This is page 32 and 33, I believe. Let's see. Yeah, 32 and 33. A little tough to read here, but we're going to read it starting off right on page 32. St. Bernardine of Siena has written, Holy Virgin, excuse me, for I speak not against thee. The Lord has raised the priesthood above thee. 
the saint assigns the reason of the superiority of the priesthood over Mary. She conceived Jesus Christ only once, but by consecrating the Eucharist, the priest, as it were, conceives him as often as he wishes, so that if the person of the Redeemer had not yet been born in the world, the priest, by pronouncing the words of consecration, would produce this great person of a man-god. Now, just that right there, we still got some more to read. There's plenty more to read on this page. Just that right there, if, if your red flags don't pop up, and that doesn't sound blasphemous to you, then you really need to wake up. You really need to wake up. Imagine such a thing, that you could say that the priest is the one conceiving Christ, who is basically more important than Mary, even for Catholics who adore Mary, to say something like this concerning the Eucharist, that you are basically bringing Christ into the world over and over again, way more important than Mary in that sense, way more magnificent in terms of the supernatural pregnancy that Mary experienced by the Holy Spirit. That's a profound, profound statement to to, see, to think that people believe that. But anyway, moving on, because we got plenty to read. A wonderful dignity of the priest cite, cries out St. Augustine. We're going to get back to St. Augustine. In their hands, as in the womb of the Blessed Virgin, the Son of God becomes incarnate. So Augustine, even though he's a proponent, or so many reformed Protestants love Augustine, Augustine was all about transubstantiation and a lot of other things too. We'll get into that later. Hence, priests are called the parents of Jesus Christ. Such is the title that St. Bernard gives them, for they are the active cause by which he is made to exist really in the consecrated host. I hope you're getting something out of this because this is, it's old, but it tells you what the belief on transubstantiation was. This is right around the time the Council of Trent was written, a little bit afterwards. Thus the priest may in a certain manner be called the creator of his creator. Uh-oh, it's getting really spicy now. Since by saying the words of the consecration, he creates, as it were, Jesus in the sacrament, by giving him a sacramental existence, and produces him as a victim to be offered to the Eternal Father. So the priest is the one managing the show and doing all this and basically invoking Christ into an object and, and sacrificing him. As in creating the world, it was sufficient for God to have said, let it be made, and it was created. He spoke, and they were made. So it is sufficient for the priest to say, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body, and behold, the bread is no longer bread, but the body of Jesus Christ. The power of the priest, says St. Bernardine of Siena, is the power of the divine person. For the transubstantiation of the bread requires as much power as the creation of the world. Really? I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, that's pretty obvious. Creating the world is a very, very different story. But if you are, you know, very deceived like these people are, then you're likely to believe all sorts of crazy things. And St. Augustine has written, O venerable sanctity of the hands, O happy function of the priest, he that created, if I may say so, gave me the power to create him. Are you kidding me? Augustine said this. So Protestants may not want to be idolizing him so much as, as people do. And he that created me without me is himself created by me. Crazy. As the word of God created heavens and earth, so says St. Jerome, the words of the priest created Jesus Christ. At a sign from God, there came forth from nothing both the sublime vault of the heavens and the vast expanse of the earth. 
but no, but not less great is the power that manifests itself in the mysterious words of the priest. The dignity of the priest is so great that he even blesses Jesus Christ on the altar as a victim to be offered to the Eternal Father. I mean, I can't believe I'm reading this, to be honest with you. I've read it a couple times, but reading it out loud is, is a whole different thing. In the sacrifice of the Mass, there it is. So Catholic Encyclopedia is telling you the truth. The Mass is a sacrifice. This was written 400 years ago. Still the same thing. Writes Father Mansi, Jesus Christ is the principal offerer and victim. As minister, he blesses the priest, but as victim, the priest blesses him. So Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, is a victim every Mass to the Catholics. Now, if you're Catholic, you probably didn't really realize that. You probably just went to church and you know that that's what you do. You get the Eucharist and, you know, it's just what it is. But I hope that you realize and you'll see why this is such a great error. Because the Catholic Mass, in order for transubstantiation to happen, it means the Christ is a victim and he is sacrificed every Sunday. Because there's an altar, there's a priest, and there is a sacrifice being offered. Just like, by the way, every pagan religion in history, the sacrificial system was not necessarily unique to the Jews. And the end of the sacrificial system was unique, i.e. a relationship with Yahweh, the only living God. But every other pagan religion had the same <clears throat> concept of a temple, special place that you go to where, where there's a spiritual focus of energy. And there was a priest, meaning somebody with authority that could mediate between you and God. And there was a sacrifice being offered. That's the only way you could get close to God, is through the sacrifice. And probably wouldn't even talk to God, you just tell the priest what you want, and he, he mediates for you. Well, through Jesus, we have a high priest that mediates for us spiritually. You could be out in the forest and you can talk to God. You don't need a temple. You don't need sacrifices anymore. But Catholicism and orthodoxy and institutionalized religion has remained in the sacrificial system. It has gone backwards. And as you hopefully will see over and over again, this is the truth. Now, what else do we got here? We have Eucharist is necessary for salvation. Is the Eucharist necessary for salvation? This is a Catholic website. Normatively, the faithful reception of the Eucharist is necessary for salvation for those who have rejected the age of reason, as Jesus makes it clear in John 6. He does not make it clear in John 6. This is a Catholic twisting of the scriptures, but... We'll get to that. I'm going to provide you with ample context that you'll see for yourself. But again, confirmation. This is a modern thing written, you know, sometime in the last decade or so. Modern thing. We look at dignities and duties of the priest. That was like four or 500 years ago, a Council of Trent. And today, Eucharist is still necessary for salvation. But does the Bible say that? Does the Bible, did God himself tell you that the Eucharist is necessary to be saved? We'll look at that. Moving on. The church does not know of any means other than baptism that assures entry into eternal beatitude. I know one. Yeah, we're going to look at it. It's called faith. God has bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism. No, he has not. Please show me where that's the case. Jesus says in John 3, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And the entire interchange there, where he says you must be born of water and the spirit, is not meaning you must have a physical birth. That's obvious. Why would he say that? 
He was talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, if you recall, in that interchange in John 3, Jesus says, aren't you the teacher of Israel? Nicodemus was a, was a teacher. He was a prolific you know, studier of the law and teacher and instructor and, and whatever, like a high-ranking, a high respected teacher. So obviously Jesus was rebuking him slightly, saying, hey, aren't you the teacher? Aren't you supposed to know this, what I'm talking to you about? When I say being born of water and the Spirit, what do you think I'm talking about? You're the teacher of Israel, aren't you? And what he's talking about is the new covenant. If you read Jeremiah 31, we'll look at these um, new covenants in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, especially Ezekiel 36, where God says, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. What is that associated to? Well, first off, it's an image that is painted in the Old Testament with the laver, where they used to have the wash basin, which, of course, that is a physical type and shadow for baptism. But baptism is not about cleaning away dirt or sprinkling water on your forehead, now you're part of the church. That was a physical thing for a spiritual reality happening where God would give you a new spirit and a new heart. That is what it means to be, a, be born of water and a spirit. He's pointing back to the new covenant saying, hey, it's here, bro. I'm here. Don't you get it? You're the teacher of Israel. So baptism is in water baptism is not tied to salvation. The thief on the cross was never water baptized. And there are plenty of people who are water baptized and become atheists and die in their sins or whatever. They become serial killers or whatever. So water baptism has no power at changing your heart. And thus, it is not something that God would ground salvation in because salvation is ground in God giving you a new heart. It's a gift that God gives you. And that comes by way of faith and repentance. The teaching of the Catholic Church is that this is necessary for salvation. So keep all this in mind because it's very important. Now, this is the orthodox understanding of the Eucharist. We're going to read a little bit about that too. The Catholics and the Orthodox are not united in the Eucharist. This is, by the way, from the Russian Orthodox Church, which, you know, there's some variation between them, but they're all relatively consistent. But they are united in the conviction that the Eucharist, bread, and wine, after the consecration, we have not just the symbolic presence of Christ, but his full and real presence. So Orthodox, even though you call your Sunday service a liturgy, not a mass, realize that because you believe the same thing as the Catholics, in terms of the real, full and real presence of Christ and in what you're consuming, that it has to be a sacrifice. There's an altar. There's a priest who speaks invocation. There's something that supposedly happens. That's a sacrifice because you've gotten it from the mother church. Now, Orthodox are going to probably get upset about that because they think they're the true church and the Catholics split away from them, but that's not true. If you look at church history and the, the branches of churches that split off, the first church that split off from the rest is actually the Eastern Church. It's not the Eastern Orthodox Church, but it's called the, um, gosh, I always forget the name of this. It's the Asian Orthodox Church or the Eastern, I totally forget the name. But anyway, they split off in 421, I believe, after the Council of Chalcedon because they rejected the whole two natures, one person thing. I think they were monophysites, meaning they were, they believed there was only one nature in Christ. And that church was the first to split off. They're the Eastern Church. 
not the Eastern Orthodox Church, but again, I'm forgetting the, the name. It's There's about like 90 million people in this church, Eastern Church. Oriental Church, that's the name I'm looking for. Thank you, God, for bringing it to my mind. The Oriental Orthodox Church. 90 million people or something like that. They were the first to split off. Look it up. And then when the Pope and the Patriarch of Constantinople excommunicated themselves, where do you get all your traditions from? You got it from Catholicism for all the thousand years before you excommunicated each other. All the things about transubstantiation, Mary, the saints, prayers for the dead, all these things are from Catholicism. Before the split, it was Catholicism. The Pope was the one that was in charge. But anyway, we believe that the bread and wine and the Eucharist are the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Eucharistic celebration is not only a common a commemoration of the Last Supper, but also its actualization for each believer who participates in it. Now, the Orthodox have a more mystical religion. I've talked about this in some of my episodes, especially the Trinity. I have an episode on that. It's very informative if you have already, if you've ever looked into Orthodoxy, if you would have wondered about it. Check out that episode. It's on, um, it's towards the end of the series. It's about Gregory Palamas, Theosis, Hesychasm, the general mysticism of orthodoxy. It's a, it's a very mystical <clears throat> oriented religion. And again, I don't mean that to insult people, but it's the truth. You really have to learn your history. But moving on, they achieve the goal while we are on the way. But the way to salvation is unthinkable without the Eucharist. There you go. So is the Eucharist necessary for salvation for orthodox? The answer is yes. There is no salvation without the church. This is the conviction that we all share both the Catholics and the Orthodox. Well, that's a real problem because now whose church are we talking about? We're talking about the Catholic or the Orthodox. If the Catholics are right, then you got a billion Orthodox that are going to hell and vice versa. Even though we think the church is a somewhat different way, in a different way. But the church is inconceivable without the Eucharist. Therefore, the very notions of the church and of the Eucharist and of salvation are linked inseparably to our theology. Thank you for being upfront about it. Thank you. And that's what we want to get to is because this is a very serious issue. Imagine such a thing that, that hinges the entirety of the faith on this particular teaching. And if this particular teaching is wrong, what does that mean? Very big deal. Very big deal. Very, very important. All right. Let's see what we got here. This is also another Orthodox um, thing. It's, it's basically called communion of salvation. I'm not going to read all this because it's, again, I'll, I'll put all these as I usually try to do uh, in the comments, or not the comments, but the uh, description on the actual post page of my website, danceoflife.com, not the YouTube page or anything like that, but I'll put the resources, you can look them for yourself and read it, but community salvation, just, just the first couple paragraphs here. Few things are as fundamental to the New Testament as the reality of communion, koinonia, yes, accurate, but as usual, they take a truth and spin it through tradition and through the lens of religion. It means commonality, a sharing on, in participation in the same thing. That's right. I agree with this. Absolutely. It is this commonality or sharing that lies at the very heart of our salvation. This communion is described in Christ's high priestly prayer. Yes, true. The communion that we share as believers in Christ is what is at the heart of the church. And by the way, that is the true church. In some sense, the Catholics and Orthodox are correct when they say that there is no salvation outside the church. True. But what do we mean by church? 
Do we mean the Catholic Church? Do we mean the Orthodox Church? The answer is the church, in quotation marks, is the people who have genuine communion with Christ through faith. That's the true church. Those are the elect of Christ that God the Father has given to Christ, who Christ will never lose. Among those, or I should say among the world of believers, of Christians, you have false converts and you have elect. The Bible has much to say about this. The wheat and the tares, the good fish and the bad fish, sheep and the goats, wise and foolish virgins. I mean, practically, I think every parable, almost every parable addresses this. The parable of the sower. What are these things pointing to? They're pointing to false converts, meaning that there is a true church, just like in Israel in the Old Testament, there were the remnant who were faithful to God, where largely among the, quote, chosen people were destroyed because they were apostate. They were never saved to begin with. So even within a group, i.e., in this case, the church, there are those who are truly saved and truly not. So obviously the teaching that you have to be part of the church, as in a physical institution, to be saved is not true because there are many false converts. The Bible warns you about false converts. So these things are very important. But my point with bringing this particular article up is he's going to take something true, which I just outlined to you, which is this communion we have in Christ. Very true. Absolutely. Everything in this paragraph is true. But then he's going to spin it with the physical aspect of Eucharist and communion and how this is part of salvation in the church and blah, 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 and all this kind of stuff. It just, again, it always comes back to the physical world. And this is something you have to pay attention to because these things are not what the Bible is leading you to. And I will prove it to you. Indulge me and I will prove it to you. So... One more thing, actually. Um, yeah, this is the Confession of Decithius. And this is an important document from also the 1600s, around the Council of Trent. And this is basically a document that... It was in response to the Reformation. And it's very important because it's basically like a confession of, of faith. It's a confession of faith. If we go down to decree... I don't remember which one. I think it's eight or 13 or something. I think it's Decree 13. There we go. Decree 13 of the Confession of Decithius from 1672. Orthodox now. This is Eastern Orthodoxy. We believe a man to be not simply justified through faith alone, but through faith which works through love. That is to say, through faith and works. Keep all of this in mind because the Bible will contradict all of it. And again, you have to ask yourself at that important juncture, what do you do with that information? Do you side with man and say, well, the Bible is part of tradition and whatever the Pope says or whatever the patriarchs say or the church fathers say, you know, that's the truth now. Or do you side with God and say, well, God can't contradict himself. So when he says that you're justified by faith alone, not by faith and works, that means the people who are saying faith and works, they're wrong. And maybe I need to question my upbringing and my religion. But moving on, another important sentence. But the idea that faith can fulfill the function of a hand that lays hold on the righteousness which is in Christ and can then apply it unto us for salvation, we know to be far from all orthodoxy. This is, I'm sorry to say it, but blasphemy. It is a complete rejection of the gospel. The idea that you can have faith and lay hold on the righteousness of Christ through that faith, which is what the Bible teaches you, 
over and over again, from the Old Testament, actually all the way through the New Testament, everybody was justified by faith. That idea is far from all orthodoxy. Well, then you don't have the gospel. And if you are an orthodox Christian and you care for the truth, then you need to read the gospels. And I will do you a favor and read them to you today. We're going to read some very important verses so that you learn the truth. But this is the confession of Decythius. And ultimately, you know, what, what does this come, come down to? What are the conclusions from all these things that we looked at? Again, we'll look at Lutherism, Lutheranism later in this episode, but hopefully you can get an appreciation now, very consistently, that the Eucharist is literally the flesh and blood of Jesus that is then being consumed. This is for both churches. The Eucharist is necessary for salvation. It is, it salvation hinges on the Eucharist. In fact, the whole church hinges on this. So very important to understand because we're going to look at what the Bible teaches about salvation. Now, in order for the Eucharist to be the body and blood of Christ, substantially, it means that the Mass or the liturgy, same thing, is a sacrifice. It has to be a sacrifice. Very, very important. And as we saw from those other books, Dignities and Duties of the Priest, St. Augustine's writings, the beliefs are very, very deceived. Very, very deceived. Very man-centered and extremely deceived, to say it very nicely. The priest has the power to command God to basically enter the Eucharist on a whim, and then sacrifice God, and then distribute him to the faithful. Now, Orthodox Christians may disagree with some of these things, but this is the implication, ultimately, if you believe in transubstantiation, that the Mass is a sacrifice, the liturgy is a sacrifice. You are attending a sacrifice every time you go to church on Sunday and you go into a mass or you go into a liturgy. You're attending a sacrifice, whether you realize it or not. And this is the important thing. Now, if the Protestants are wrong, again, one more time, if the Protestants are wrong about this, we are missing out on a crucial aspect of faith, potentially even communion with God, because he commanded us to have this and be in communion with him. So if you're rejecting transubstantiation, then what does that mean? Are you rejecting God? This is a serious issue. But if the Catholics and Orthodox are wrong, this is blasphemy. I hope, you've, I hope you have realized that. At least, what is at stake? Maybe not, you don't agree with me yet, but you've realized what is at stake on either side. This is a very important issue. So we need to get to the bottom of it, and we need to realize what are some proper responses to this. Now, the first response is on whether the Eucharist is necessary for salvation. That's an important question to ask. And we have to consult again, what does the Bible say? The Bible is the word of God. God does not contradict himself. So if he inspired the church fathers to say a certain thing, and he inspired people to do this and to say what they're saying and do these teachings, and he inspired the Bible, he cannot contradict himself. Because God cannot contradict himself, you can use that as a way to discern what is the truth. And this is the beauty about studying the Bible, because you know God cannot contradict himself. So now let's look at some important scriptures in response to all those things about the Eucharist being necessary for salvation, all the works and grace that both of these churches hold to. Hebrew, or Habakkuk, this is the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2 verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up, this is the wicked. It is not upright within him, but the righteous 
shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by his faith, not by his faith in works, but by his faith. Old Testament. Acts 16, verse 30 through 31. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. This is, I believe, the guard, the jailer. Yeah, the Philippian jailer gets converted. So what must I do to be saved? Did Paul say, here, quick, give me a bowl of water. Let me dunk your head in this, and now you're saved. Is that what Paul said? Or said, hey, bring me some bread and some wine, and we need to do this ritual really quick to sacrifice Christ, and then that way you can take him into your body, and now you're saved. No. Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust in Christ. That is the foundation of the Christian faith. Do you have a trusting relationship with Christ? Galatians 2, verse 16, justified by faith. Actually, we'll start with 15. But we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified, of course. So now when you go back to the confession of the Scythius, and they tell you that it's all—it's far from orthodoxy, the idea that you could lay hold on the righteousness of Christ through your faith. That's far from orthodoxy. Well, they're very far from the gospel. Same thing with the Catholics, where they basically said, well, you, you can't be saved unless you do the sacraments. That's not what the Bible tells you over and over again. This is why the Bible was banned by the Catholic Church, by the way. And if you know your history about the Reformation— Pretty much it's self-explanatory. Now it is evident, this is Galatians 3, verse 11. The righteous shall live by faith. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. This is a quote of Habakkuk that Paul is quoting. So Old Testament, New Testament, same thing. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of spirit through faith and works? Nope. Through sacraments? No. Through baptism? Nope, not that. Through faith. So that we might receive the promise of Abraham through faith. Very, very important. Romans 3, verses uh, 21 through 28. The righteousness of God through faith. Are you seeing a pattern? I am. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Who all who believe, all who get baptized, all who take communion, all who do sacraments, all who do anything. No, all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, what does that mean? Propitiation means somebody has paid the debt for you. He's your propitiation. You claim that payment through faith. That's when you receive Christ into your life. To be re- look, look at the next verse, to be received by faith. Receiving is very important. Receiving is, this is an important thing to, to stick on for just a second. 
it's one thing, even, you know, the Bible says even the demons believe in God and they shudder. I think that's in James, I forget the verse, but even the demons believe. So it's, it's not just believing, it is receiving. If, if somebody, literally, if you're in jail, you're on death row, you're, you're going to get executed tomorrow, and somebody comes in and says, listen, I've paid the payment for you. You can go free. Here, here's the, you got to sign right here in order for you to accept the payment. It has to be consensual. Do you sign? This is what it means to receive. It's not just believing, it is accepting and receiving that payment so that Christ can be your propitiation. That is a genuine turn of faith and repentance and trust. And that is what saves you, not belonging to the Catholic Church, not being baptized, not taking communion, none of that stuff. Those things are added much, much later. And they're not added by the Holy Spirit because obviously there's going to be a lot of contradictions, as you'll soon see, between what we just read in the official teachings and what Scripture is revealing over and over again with being saved by faith. But moving on, verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just, he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Boom! Confession of Decythius refuted. How do you deal with that, Orthodox Christians? The answer is that you can't. You have to either reject, well, there's only one option, and that's you have to reject the testimony of Scripture and find some way to justify it, because it's very clear. Verse 28, I'm going to read it again. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It is literally the exact opposite of the confession of Decythius. Very important. Romans 4, verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So if Abraham is the one who is the father of us all spiritually. Why? Because Abraham had faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what the Bible says. Romans 5, verse 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, yet again, there you go, you've seen a pattern? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course you have peace with God if you accept the gospel, the true gospel. You know you, you know why you have peace with God? Because God is the one doing the work. You have peace with him. But if you're running the rat wheel of sacraments, and I have to go to communion, I have to do this, I have to do that in order to be saved, you never have peace with God. Orthodox Christians and Catholics, you do not have security in your salvation. Because according to your religion, your salvation is never finished. Not until the end. And even then, you're not sure. Jesus might say, well, I don't know, buddy. You didn't do so well. Could have gone to church more. You know, you don't have assurance of salvation. You don't have peace with God. But the gospel, the true gospel gives you peace. That's why it's so beautiful. Verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. By faith, we have obtained the access into the hope and the grace and to the 
thing that's coming on the horizon, which is the renewal of our bodies and of creation. By faith, that is how we enter into that. Five, Romans 5, verse 8 through 10. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, past tense, already, past fact, justified, not continually going and attending sacrifices, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, we for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Does that sound to you like you need to do something or run the rat wheel of sacraments or get baptized or take communion in order to be saved? Or does it sound like it's a done deal? God has done the work. You need to receive it through faith. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wait a minute, didn't the confession of, of Decythia said that the idea that you can lay hold of the righteousness of Christ by faith is just far from all orthodoxy? Well, my friends, you are actually far from the gospel, very far from all that is the gospel. Because the gospel tells you, in this verse and in many others, that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, i.e. propitiation. For our sake, he's the propitiation. He was sinless, and he got condemned. Whereas we are sinful, and we receive grace, because he's the propitiation. That's the whole point of the gospel. You have a propitiation. You have the once and for all sacrifice that has appeased God, but you have to receive it. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That right there tells you that by faith, you become the righteousness of God. Meaning when God looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ. The white robe that we receive that's both mentioned in the Old Testament and the New Testament as a figure of salvation, a metaphor, book of Revelation, very lot of uh, pictures of that. But the white robe that Jesus gives us, it's not our white robe, it's his he gives it to us to wear so that when God looks at us, he sees the innocence of Christ. That exchange is central to understanding the gospel, that Jesus Christ took your sins on the cross so that you could take his righteousness by faith. The, the thing that happened to Christ is the most unjust thing that happened in human history. And yet because of that, God used it for the greatest grace imaginable. That's what grace is. It's scandalous to the old mindset. And Catholics and Orthodox are stuck in the old mindset of running the wheel to try to do something to please God. When the Bible tells you otherwise. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, very popular one. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, confession of Decythius, you have to reconcile all of these issues. Same with the Council of Trent and all the Catholic teachings, it's very clear. James 2, verses 23 through uh, 26. And the scriptures was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We mentioned that previously. And he was called a friend of God. So because Abraham believed, 
he was saved, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, wait a minute. Before we move on, let's let's stop there for a second. Isn't it that the Orthodox say that the idea that you can lay hold on the righteousness of Christ, who is God, so basically laying hold on the righteousness of God, by faith, is far from all orthodoxy. But if Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, because he believed, Abraham laid hold on the righteousness of God by faith. And because we are children of Abraham, by faith we lay hold on the righteousness of Christ. That is the whole point of the gospel. Which, again and again, you can see that orthodoxy and Catholicism are very far from. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way also was also not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, the Orthodox will use this and say, see, gotcha but you're missing the context. And that's the reason I chose to read this beginning with a previous verse. We do good works and we have authentic faith. Or I should say our good works authenticate our faith. But why do we do good works? We do good works because we are saved. Because God has given us a new heart. Not because we need to accomplish something, i.e. salvation, reconciliation with God, forgiveness of sins, All that stuff has been accomplished by Christ. This is the fundamental difference between religion and the gospel. And I hate to say it again, not bashing any Catholics or Orthodox, but the religion of the Catholic system and the Orthodox system does not have a hold of the gospel. A couple more here. Titus 3, verse 5 through 7. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because of works, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Again, you cannot be born unless you, unless you are born of water and the Spirit. Now, do you see how this is relating to the new covenant, washing of regeneration? Is he talking about baptism, physical baptism? No. He's talking about the regeneration you experience when God gives you a new heart. He's cleaning you in that process. It's touching on that new covenant that was announced back in Ezekiel where he's going to sprinkle clean water on you. Does that mean that God is supernaturally going to come and sprinkle some water on your face? No. It means he's going to clean you from the inside out. And this is another proof text for that. Verse 6, Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Past tense, it's, it's a done deal, justified. Now you have to receive that, so it doesn't mean you can do whatever you want, but Christ's work is a done deal, that's it. No more sacrifices, no more work to be done. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8-9 through nine. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Gosh, this is another can of worms, but the Bible teaches a predestined outcome that God predestined all things in this reality for his glory. And because Catholics and Orthodox reject that, 
because they have to, to justify their synergistic system of running the rat wheel of sacraments, you ignore the very core of your peace with God. You're always running in religion. But the Bible tells you that the outcome was already predestined to glorify God. And you are part of that outcome and you're experiencing the unfolding of that outcome. And so therefore there is nothing to race or run or feel lack or do or try to change the outcome of, but rather to participate in. It's a very different mentality that the Bible reveals to you, which is a profoundly different way of seeing the world than what the world teaches you. It's nothing different between Catholicism and Orthodoxy and Mormonism and Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam and Judaism. They all rely on works and on you having to do something in order to reconcile with God. So you have to see that that's important. Whereas the Bible tells you that the work has been done and you align with that through faith. Very different. Luke 7, uh, verses 48 through 50. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at a table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace, straight from the mouth of God. What did Jesus say? You need to get baptized. Oh, uh, no, you need to break bread really quick, or you need to have some wine. You need to do this or that. No, your faith has saved you. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Go in peace. You are now forgiven and have trust in that. That's what it's all about. That's the gospel right there in one line. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Brilliant. It's truly brilliant. But again, does this match up with orthodoxy and Catholicism? Now, one thing that Orthodox and Catholics can't seem to get over is the fact that, well, is believing just enough? How That means you can just do whatever you want. No. The thing to get is that when you truly have trust in Christ, he gives you a new heart that creates new works by default and a love for God and a love for other people by default because you're born again. New works spontaneously emerge from a born-again Christian. But if you are trying to do works in order to become born again, to keep your faith, you're missing the whole point. That's why it's backwards in religion. You must have faith and trust in Christ. He gives you a new heart and you pursue that. And the Holy Spirit guides you into all truth, guides you into new works, and gives you a new life and sustains you, by the way. But most people who are in religion are chasing the outcome. And of course, if you're chasing, you're never going to get to it, which is the irony. Very, very interesting. So I hope more people will learn the truth couple more here. Luke 23, verse 43. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Thief on the cross was never baptized, never took communion. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Does it say whoever takes communion, whoever gets baptized, whoever does X, Y, Z? No, whoever believes in him. One more is Hebrews 11, but I'm not going to cite it. Or I should say, I'm not going to read it, but I will cite it. Hebrews 11, look it up. It's called the Hall of Faith. It's not really called the Hall of Faith. I don't think it is. But Hebrews 11 is referred to as the Hall of Faith because of the many, many examples of faith throughout the Bible that the author cites. The Hall of Faith. Maybe it is called the Hall of Faith. I always forget. Okay, I found it. Yeah, it is actually just called by faith. 
But as you can see, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction is not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. And then he goes on and on and on to list by faith Abel, by faith Enoch, and without faith is by faith Noah, excuse me, by faith Abraham, by faith Sarah. I mean, it's a it's a hall of faith, which shows you that even throughout the Old Testament, God always justified people by faith, not by works, not by works and faith, but by faith. So why? So that no man may boast. Because if you do anything to contribute to the outcome, which you can't anyway, but if you could, then you would be sharing the outcome's glory with God. And Madison shares a thing. God shares his glory with nobody. So, conclusion. The testimony of Scripture is pretty unanimous on this particular topic. Unanimous. Completely consistent. Doesn't even matter what translation you use most of the time. They're going to be completely consistent on this. Now, I say most of the time because I'm thinking of things like the message and the passion, which are really bad. But even in those really bad translations, you can discern the truth that the gospel is by faith. Not by works, not by works in faith, but by faith. So very, very important because that's a complete contradiction to the Catholic and Orthodox system. Faith results in a new heart, which is a new life which results in new actions and therefore obedience. It's the other way around in religion. Religion tries to get you to obey and do all these different things in the hopes that you might have stronger faith. But that means you are hinging your faith on your own works, not trusting God and allowing that surrender to, uh, to transform your heart and to create a new way of being. It's the other way around. The Holy Spirit's given to us when we have faith, and he conforms us so that we are not only conformed in Christ's image, so we are laying hold of the righteousness of Christ, but that we are secure in God's work, because God doesn't end, or I should say, God can't be frustrated in his plans. What God starts, he also finishes. Nothing in the entire Bible hinges salvation on doing anything in the material world, like baptism, like communion, or whatever else no sacraments. None of the things we read, and we read quite a lot of them, hinge salvation on a particular thing you have to do or experience in the physical world, rather on the internal world of your soul, which is faith. Nothing hinges salvation as being part of a denomination either. You got to be part of the church. Well, what does that mean? If you mean the elect of Christ who are born again, who God has chosen to save and given you hearts to, then yeah, if you're not elect, then you won't be saved. But if you are thinking, oh, I'm in the church, I'm saved, that, that doesn't mean you're saved. The Bible invites you to confirm your election. And that's an important thing because, yeah, it means evaluate your life. Like, do I, do I have fruits of the Spirit? Do I have, you know, a new life? Do I see signs that God is working in my life? The Bible invites you to have that dialogue with yourself, to confirm your election, because there are many, many false converts. To be part of the church is to be born again. Again, when we looked at John 3, we didn't actually look at the verse, but when we looked at John 3, conceptually, nobody can be part of the kingdom of God unless they're born again. So the kingdom of God is the church, which again, you'll see some other types for this, the Lord's table, the temple, the house of God. All of these things are, are equivalent terms. 
meaning you cannot be part of the church unless you're born again. The question is, is the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church causing people to be born again? The only way they could be true in their statement that no salvation exists outside the church is if every single member of that denomination was saved, was born again. Now, that's very unlikely, because being born again is a matter of the heart, and it's something that God controls. So, obviously, that's wrong, too, because that's not what the Bible tells you. There are some very big questions you have to ask yourself if you believe in transubstantiation. Now, one of them is, what does it mean if you believe a physical thing is necessary for salvation? What does that mean? When the Bible's clear, I mean, this is not even all of the verses on this topic. I chose a good chunk of them to show you a consistent pattern throughout the entire New Testament. But obviously, it's about spiritual things. It's about faith. What does it mean if you're hinging your salvation on something physical where the Bible says no such thing? What does that mean? You're basically placing your faith and your trust in something of the world. You're not placing your faith and complete trust and assurance in Christ and his work on the cross that he did on your behalf. That is the essence of the gospel. The moment you shift that trust, whether you have one leg here and one leg there or both legs over here, doesn't matter. The moment you shift that trust into the church, the sacraments, the works of other people, your priest, Mary, the saints, whoever, you are moving away from the gospel. I'm not saying you're losing your salvation, but you're moving away from the gospel because all who are elect will not lose their salvation. And that's the beauty but such a controversial topic these days, unfortunately. You know, working to be saved is nothing new. The Vikings believed in Valhalla. The uh, Muslims believe in good works to get to paradise. Jews believe same thing. Buddhists, Hindus, New Age, personal growth movement. It's all of this, It's all the same. So you have to ask yourself, if if I if my beliefs share in common with all these other pagan beliefs in history, what is that? How is Christianity different? What's the point of Christianity? It's just a different flavor of working to get somewhere. Well, the difference is that Christianity is truly unique and different because of the gospel. The gospel tells you that it's not you who's working, it's God who's done the work, and you have to receive it. It's a completely different mentality and paradigm. But so few find that narrow road, because wide is the road to destruction. Why is the, why is the wide road so wide? Well, because the world has many flavors of the same thing. The devil's been very busy. And one of the places he's been busy at is with institutionalized religion, which I go into in my end time series. So check it out. Now, another important question is this. What does it mean that the body and blood are offered to you and offered up as a sacrifice every Sunday? What does that mean? What are the implications? This is very important. And the implication is that you're sacrificing Christ over and over and over again, you're sacrificing him. Of course, you're not actually doing it, but this is what you're attending. You're attending a sacrifice where the priest believes that he can invoke the creator. The, the, the creator, the creation can create the creator. Remember what Augustine said? And all those other saints, quote unquote saints, I don't know about that, but Catholic saints, that the, crea the creation can create the creator and then sacrifice him. Like, this is blasphemy. I'm sorry to say it. 
But let's just get right to it, folks. It's blasphemous. It really is to believe that you're sacrificing Christ and invoking him into something physical. John 19 verse 30 says, it is finished. That was Christ's last words. It is done, meaning it is paid in full. That's the actual Greek words. It's uh, tetelestai, paid in full, as in they would write on a receipt, paid in full. But if you believe that you're attending a sacrifice, it means that it's never finished. He has to continually be sacrificed. But let's see what the Bible says about that. John 19, verse 30, it is finished. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Hebrews 9, verse 24 to 26, for Christ has entered not only to holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood of not his own. For then he would have to had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. This is exactly what Catholics do through their transubstantiation. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once for all. Once for all. He did not appear to offer himself repeatedly. What, what absurdity is that? The creator of the universe to humble himself and to continually sacrifice himself? That's nonsense. I mean, it's just, it really is, honestly. I'm sorry to say it. Hebrews 10, I'm not sorry to say it, actually, because you need to wake up if you believe this stuff. Hebrews 10, 14 through 18. For by a single offering, he has perfected all, the, all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. This is the new covenant in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of, of, of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So what does this mean? That means the sacrifice has been done. There's no more need for sacrifices. In fact, end times kind of sidetrack moment, but... When it says in Daniel 9 that for the overspreading of abominations, he's going to cause desolation, meaning after Christ provided his once-for-all sacrifice, the Jews kept sacrificing. And I go over some evidence there, even in the Talmud, that shows that God basically gave them supernatural signs for 40 years up until the destruction of the temple. The signs in the Talmud records this 40 years that the Jews basically received no supernatural science in terms of the Day of Atonement, which they normally would, some sort of, you know, sign. But they didn't receive any signs, meaning from eighty thirty one when Jesus was crucified, to the destruction of the temple, God clearly said, stop it. Stop sacrificing. I mean, the, te the veil of the temple was torn in two. There was an earthquake. Like, how many more signs could you get? But they didn't. They kept sacrificing. And so they were judged. They were judged and destroyed because... They were overspreading their abominations. The Old Testament says it's an abomination to bring, the, the sacrifices of the wicked are an abomination to God. And that's why this whole third temple thing today is just nonsense. But anyway, moving onward, 1 John 2, verse 1 through 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Propitiation means he is the one who paid your debt. 
Do you receive it or not? That's what the question of the gospel is. That's the million-dollar question. Acts 4, 26-28, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his, against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Here we go. Key verse. Put this into your memory. Burn it really hard. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had, what? Predestined to take place. The cross was predestined. It was predetermined from the beginning, before the reality was brought into existence. In fact, the only reason reality existed was because the cross was scheduled. Otherwise, God could not have interacted with anybody. He'd have to destroy them on the spot. But he was merciful because the cross was already scheduled. Remember back in Romans, Romans 3, the reason one of the reasons that Christ showed up was to vindicate the name of God because he had passed over former sins. Well, yeah, it would now put it together with this one. The cross was scheduled, which allowed God to interact with humanity and express his mercy. Otherwise, he couldn't have. He's a perfect being. He would destroy anything that would sin from the first get-go. When Adam and Eve fell, boom, that's it. You're gone. See you later. But he was merciful. And of course, Revelation 13, 8 all those who dwell on the earth will worship it, i.e. the beast, i.e. the Catholic Church. But anyway, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world and the people who are written in the book with him, i.e. the elect who are going to come to life and be believe the, <clears throat> believe the gospel, anybody who's not written in that book is going to worship the beast and take the mark. So confirm your election. We don't know who is elect, who God chooses to save, but we are invited to confirm our election and not to rely on our own works, on religion, on priests, on the Pope, on sacraments, on all these things. So conclusion, the Mass is a sacrifice, and because of that, it is a contradiction to the Gospel, because the Gospel says the sacrifice was one, one and done, once for all time. It was predestined, God had predetermined it from the beginning of time, the singular event in history, the most important event. Do you think with all of these things that, that now it's going to be an ongoing sacrifice of Christ? That is absolute. Again, it's blasphemy. Really, it is, if you think about it, because the Bible tells you explicitly he came to be sacrificed once, not repeatedly, not over and over again, not every Sunday, Certainly not the way the Catholics and Orthodox teach him, teach transubstantiation. And because transubstantiation necessitates, mean, meaning it requires that the liturgy and the Mass become a sacrifice. You are attending a sacrifice. Whether you agree with that or not, according to the Catholic teaching, the Mass is a sacrifice. Orthodox align with Catholics in terms of transubstantiation, believing that it's the full body and blood. Well, if that's the case, then you're attending a sacrifice because that change has to happen and you are participating in that. Very, very important. Now, the second response to all of these things that we looked at with, with the initial doctrines of the church is regarding the works of the church and the fruits of the Spirit. There is this conflation, as most institutionalized religions tend to do, 
Mormons do this stuff too. Everybody does this. It's con there's a conflation between the spiritual and the physical. Whereas the Bible is very much about spiritual things. The fruits of the Spirit are not works of the church. Meaning the things that you do like sacraments are not fruits of the Spirit. But if you're Orthodox or Catholic, this is a, a, a tough area to distinguish because that's what you're taught. Fruits of the Spirit are things in your character, in your ability to love, to treat others rightly. Those are fruits of the Spirit. Not taking sacraments. That's Taking sacraments is not sanctification. Because again, we are conformed by the power of the Holy Spirit over time, through our earthly lives after we're born again. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. How are we sanctified? By belief in this by belief in the truth. Who is the truth? Who is the truth? It's Jesus. So by belief in Christ, sanctification by the Spirit, not by baptism, Eucharist, confirmation, etc., etc. It is a spiritual relationship with God. John 4, verse 24, very popular verse. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth, i.e., do not look at things with carnal eyes and fleshly eyes and worldly physical eyes. The devil wants you to do that because then you're going to miss the whole point of the gospel, which, of course, as you can see by now, hopefully, again, I'm not trying to ruffle feathers. I mean, I am trying to ruffle feathers a little bit, but enough to just get you to wake up, man. You got to wake up. Doing sacraments in both churches is required for salvation, and it gives you the illusion that you're holy, that you're being sanctified, that you're being spiritual by doing physical things. And this is the deception. Feasts, feast days, fasting, praying for the dead, doing various prayers, penance, you know, sacraments, all the rat race that comes with religion. Look, again, I've been in it all. When I was young, when I was 13... I became a vegetarian. I went to a monastery, an Orthodox monastery in Romania. And they convinced me that at the end of time, when Jesus would return, that everybody who was eating meat would burn alive. Now, imagine at the time I was 13, I wasn't reading the Bible. I didn't have any discernment. So I got really scared. And for seven years of my life, I became a very unhealthy vegan. I didn't even have diet principles. I didn't have any knowledge. It was horrible. I wasn't eating anything because I was afraid I didn't want to sin and, you know, burn in hell. So this is the danger of religion. I've been in it. I, when I speak to you about these things, I'm telling you that I've come out of it and I'm telling you the truth. So I hope you will indulge me. But here's another thing to think about. Activity does not mean productivity. It's kind of like in business. A lot of times we are very active if you're self-employed like I am or you're, you know, just even at your work, like if you're doing stuff, but not everything that you're doing is actually productive. You know what I mean? Like when you have a list of stuff and you think you're so busy, but you're not actually really getting anything done. This is the same thing with the sacramental system. Activity does not mean spirituality or productivity or whatever else. It just means activity. Oh, I went to church. I got this. I got communion. I went to Confession, I did. I went to Mass, I did this. Like, okay, what does that mean? Did you have a change of the heart? Or did you just go through the momentum of this system? Very, very important. Being born again is a matter of the heart. It's a change in your state of being. 
it doesn't depend on physical things. In fact, it only depends on one thing, and that's God. God has to choose to give you a new heart. And from that point on, you are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You have a relationship with Christ. You have a trusting relationship with God. And you're participating in the plan that he has for you. So it depends on the Lord. Now, what does the scripture have to say about what does God actually care about? This is another important thing to keep in mind. Let's see. Hosea 6, verse 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What does God care about? Steadfast love and the knowledge of God, meaning being born again, not burnt offerings. Those are physical things. 1 Samuel 15, verses 22 through 23, And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than the f- sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This was Saul. Oof. Saul got impatient. He didn't obey. And that is much better. Obedience is much better than sacrifices. God, from the very beginning, is trying to inculcate or penetrate this idea like, look, it's not about the physical things, dude. The physical things are there as shadows and types in order for you to understand the spiritual things that you can't see. But of course, people even today, thousands of years later, don't get it. It's not about burnt offerings or sacrifices. It's about obedience and knowledge of the Lord and mercy. Now, obedience doesn't mean you obey to be saved, so don't read that into it. It just means trust in the Lord. And yeah, if you trust in the Lord, guess what? You're going to want to obey because you get a new heart and a new conscience that's capable of doing that. Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That's what God cares about. That's the sacrifices God really cares about. Repentance, when you sacrifice your ego and you die in Christ. See the brilliance of it? Christ died a physical death so that you and I could die a spiritual death and crucify our flesh and our ego so that we could live. Isaiah 1, verses 11 through 17. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Does this sound like religion to you? Does this sound like God likes religion? It doesn't sound like it at all. God doesn't like religion whatsoever. God is against religion. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. Hmm, does that sound like something you know? Especially if you're Orthodox or Catholic. Jesus said the same thing too. Don't pray like the heathens, because they think they're going to be heard for their many prayers, doing the rosary, bouncing back and forth. Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Hesychasm, Catholic mysticism, the spiritual exercise of the Jesuits. So much, gosh. I will not listen to you. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. There you go. There's the new covenant again. Is he talking about getting baptized and jumping into water? Of course not. 
Remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case, or the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Through Though your sins are as, like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So God is very much against religion. Obviously so. And, and em- the emptiness of ritualistic practices that do not have a conversion of the heart. They're meaningless. This is very important. Now in the New Testament, Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, what does this mean? Like to go and sacrifice yourself on some altar? No, of course not. These are spiritual things. God is saying through the New Testament, through Paul, Present yourself as an offering to God. Give your life to God. That's what God cares about. He doesn't care about sacraments. He doesn't care about all these physical things, all the rat race that people run in religion. He cares about real, true things. The knowledge of God is better than the fat of rams. Mixing two verses there, but anyway. Hebrews 13, verses 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Meaning when you're grateful to God and you offer up praises to the Lord, you are offering up sacrifices that are acceptable to God. So God has told you what is acceptable. Of course, there is an actual physical sacrifice that had to pay for your sins in the physical world. And that's Christ. That's one and done. But this new system is not about physical things. It's about the ongoing and developing relationship that we have with Christ and with God, through Christ. Christ is God, but Christ is, uh, the God is a triune being. So we have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, with God the Father, and with the Son. So in this new system, the living sacrifice, you're the living sacrifice. No more are you killing things. You're killing your ego and you're living, you're giving your life to God. You're presenting praise and gratitude as sacrifices, not bulls and pigeons and goats and whatever else. All of these things point to supernatural, spiritual things that God has brought about through the New Covenant. So profound. And of course, in the Old Testament, what does the New Covenant tell you? Jeremiah 31, 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Who is doing the work? God is doing the work. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Who is doing what? God is going to put the law on your heart. What does that mean? He's going to give you a new conscience that desires to obey, that desires to do good work, that desires to love God, that desires to love your neighbor, because God is going to do that to you. He is going to do that to you. That's the new covenant, because you can't do it. You're dead in your sins. And this is the whole point that the Reformation was formed around. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 27. I will take from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is the thing that Jesus was referring to. And also in uh, Timothy, I believe, what we just looked at previously. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Now, is he talking about just giving you a shower, putting you in in a laver, No, this is a spiritual cleanness, spiritual water. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. 
and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Who is doing the work? God is doing the work. He's the one giving you a new heart that is able to obey and to do good works. Good works come after you get the new heart. You do not do good works so that you can get a new heart or that you can do something about having a better faith or a better relationship with God. It is the change of being that comes before the doing. Every other teaching in history, whether it's pagan or Catholicism or Orthodoxy, is the opposite. It is doing to become being. It is doing to obtain some sort of state of being. And ironically, you never get there. Trust me, I was in Orthodoxy for 20-something years. I went to Catholic schools, and I was in the New Age movement. So I went from one side to the other, dark to light, and they're both false, false teachings, all trying to chase something that you can never get to. And yet Christianity makes it so easy. And yet it's so difficult because you need you have you need to have your eyes open by God. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Who is doing the work? It is God that is doing the work. So conclusion is that God has always cared about what? Physical things? No. Change of the heart, internal situation. He's always cared about the internal situation, not physical sacrifices, physical offerings, but internal situation. The new covenant is God doing the work to cause you to be born again so that you can then obey God. You're sanctified by the Spirit after you are born again. That's very clear from the scriptures. Your salvation is also sure because God is doing the work. Nobody can trump God's effort if he's chosen to work in your life. And you obey because you're saved, not to be saved. So all of these things are, again, in sharp contradiction to everything we see in the Catholic and Orthodox Church. Now, number three, the, res- the third response is this, to, again, all those things we looked at. It- and it's the idea of relying on tradition rather than Scripture. The- that's an error. It's an error of relying on tradition rather than Scripture. Because obviously Scripture has very different things to say than tradition. Both churches use the writings of the saints, as you can see, as you saw in that um, Dignities and Duties of the Priest, quoting Augustine and you know various other saints, Bartholomew or whatever, Bernadine, James, I forget their names. And they're relying on what other people said rather than studying what the Word of God says. This is a very important thing. And, and the reason they do that is because the Word of God is contradictory to tradition most of the time, at least the traditions that people rely on today. Mark 7, verses 11 through 13, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. But you say, if a man tells his father on his mother or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do, and many such things that you do. So the Pharisees were basically making some sort of tradition with handing down property where people, basically, if you hated your mother and your father, which again, is a mortal sin, it's breaking the Ten Commandments. You should not hate your mother and your your father. But if you did, and you wanted to slight them, the Pharisees had some way where you could donate it to the temple. You could donate your property to the temple or whatever other thing. That way, you know, you could basically not give it to your parents. And it's okay. You're righteous. It's fine. That's a good thing. You're giving it to God. And by doing so, they nullified the commandment on honoring your parents. And this is what Jesus is rebuking them for, that you basically have created these traditions that are 
making people avoid and abandon the law of God in favor of your your idea of morality. And this is exactly what's happening with transubstantiation over and over again. So if Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for this, we need to pay attention because that means that tradition is not 100% good. And we should evaluate tradition with what? What is Jesus evaluating tradition with here? Very important precedent that's being set. I hope you caught it. Verse 13, here's the answer. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. What is the standard that Jesus is using to evaluate tradition? The answer is the word of God. Jesus is using the Bible. Now, of course, the Bible wasn't called the Bible then, but it was called the scriptures, the law and the prophets, the word of God, which is still the word of God today. Of course, we have the New Testament now, which wasn't really there during Mark 13, but nonetheless, we have the word of God, the complete revealed word of God. So you have to use the word of God to compare your traditions to this and understand, well, am I nullifying the word of God or am I with it? This is very important. And of course, so far you've seen that the opposite is true, that you're not with the word of God. And this is why the Reformation happened, among many other things. Now, Augustine also had Gnostic roots. We're going to look at Augustine in just a second. He introduced a lot of heretical and crazy ideas. Ironically, a lot of Protestants are all about Augustine. He had some things that were decent, but many things were, a lot of these church fathers were all over the place. We're going to look at that too. Uh, He was also right after Constantine, when Constantine created the counterfeit Roman Catholic, basically church-state union, changed the Sabbath, all these things. And again, which probably if you're Catholic and you're Orthodox and you're still listening to this, it's going to sound like, what? What are you talking about? Constantine was a church hero. Well, look at some of my end time series episodes and learn the truth because that's not what the truth is. You've been told something. Remember, history is written by the winners. And of course, if you are the Catholic Church, you're going to promote somebody who created a Christian nationalist system for the church as a hero. But Constantine, I'm not sure if he was saved or not, but for sure, he was very duplicitous. He was stuck between paganism and quote-unquote Christianity. Very interesting. Now, let's look at Augustine and the Church Fathers. This is um, Augustine, the former Gnostic, and his many heretical views. So it's, it's a couple things about Augustine. What he taught, the supreme authority of the Roman Catholic Church. He was all about the church, the Roman church, which again, if you're Protestant, like, got to look into this stuff. He believed in purgatory, prayers for the dead, the damnation of the unbaptized uh, infants and adults, um, that sex was sinful to do even within a marriage because of the depravity, like total depravity is inherited, original sin. So sex is sinful even in a marriage. Which is what led to the rise of monasteries, which again, the Bible warns you about this. I didn't pull up this verse, but it warns you about celibacy and and ascetism and and denial of the body for no reason. These things are false ideas. It doesn't do anything for the change of the heart. Ironically, because people in monasteries think they're so close to God, but they're far from the gospel, man, I'll tell you. Mary never committed sin, and we do well to worship her, pray Go through, go through. So he was all about Mary and Mary as a possible co-redemptress. I don't know exactly what he believed about Mary, but certainly he held her in a very high regard, very, very much so. Catholics will probably object to this, of course, because they believe that Mary is practically a co-redeemer, but what does the Bible say? There's no mediator between God and man other than Jesus Christ. This is a very important 
Very important. Central teaching to Christianity. Apocrypha is included in the scriptures, which Apocrypha, there's a lot of contradictions with the Apocrypha and the Word of God. What's your standard? If the Apocrypha says that you can pray for the dead, and there's other parts in the accepted Bible that say, do not have any communion with the dead, don't do anything for the dead, they're dead, that's it, then which one's right? When when it tells you in, in Hebrews that after the after a man dies, then comes the judgment. And the apocryphal books are basically telling you that you could pray for the dead in hopes that their salvation state might change, the state of their salvation might change. Which one is right? Well, obviously, the apocrypha is wrong because God cannot contradict himself. But moving on, this is uh, number 14 on this list. Eucharist is necessary for salvation. So there you go. We, we confirm that with the Duties and Dignities of the Priest from the 1600s. That was quoting Augustine, if you remember that. Giving people the official saint title. So he was all about saint. Now, look, this is an inversion of the truth. God is not a God of the dead. That's what the Bible says. God is God of the living. He's the living God. People were honoring the underworld and gods of the dead and all this stuff in pagan cultures. That's the whole point. Saints in the Catholic and Orthodox Church are people who are dead. Whereas saints, according to the Bible, are people who are alive and believe in Christ. Those are the saints. But you see, Orthodoxy has this, and Catholicism have these hierarchies that, oh my gosh, if you're a saint, you must just be so holy. No, you're a saint the moment you you place your faith in Christ and you lay hold of his righteousness through faith. That's the whole point. Through genuine faith, you become a saint. But again, the word saint has been changed and adapted to dead people who denied themselves from marriage and, you know, lived in a, in a monastery all day, which is, again, it's an inversion. It's not the truth. Let's read some more about Augustine, though. Unlike Pelagius, Augustine didn't understand much Greek. Very important. The historian Neander observed that Augustine's teaching, quote, contains the germ of the whole system of spiritual despotism, intolerance, and persecution even to the court of the Inquisition. So a lot of the things that the Catholic Church later did, which were very bloody and very ugly, were very much coming from Augustine's thinking, if you have studied Augustine a little bit. He instigated bitter persecutions against the Bible-believing Donatists who were striving to maintain pure churches after the apostolic faith. There were a lot of groups like this. Waldenses, the Albigenses, uh, you know, Donatists, so many. I think there was another one with a B, but I forget the name. Augustine interpreted Bible prophecy allegorically, among other things, teaching that the Catholic Church is the kingdom of God. He wrote a book called The City of God, which is the Christian nationalists, you know, uh, I don't know what to call it, just dream, I guess. But anyway, Augustine was one of the fathers of the her- heresy of infant baptism, claiming the, that unbaptized infants were lost and calling all who rejected infant baptism infidels and cursed. Well, God is always going to do the right thing. God is always going to be merciful. And so the idea that an infant that's, that dies is somehow committed to eternal damnation, this is nonsense. Not at all supported by the Bible. But nonetheless, infant baptism also doesn't do anything either. It doesn't convict the heart. The infant isn't capable of a conscious decision at that point. So infant baptism is nothing. It's just a physical ritual. But Augustine supported that. So Protestants, perk your ears up. 
Augustine exalted church traditions above the Bible and said, I should not believe the gospel unless I were moved to do so by the authority of the Catholic Church. So very much pro-Roman authority. Now let's look at the church fathers. And this will all make sense in just a second. Because again, we're responding to the idea that tradition is being used rather than scripture. Okay, subordinationism. According to Oxford Encyclopedia, subordination means to consider Christ as Son of God as inferior to the Father. I have a whole, I have a whole thing, especially in the Trinity series about subordinationism and the heresies and monarchical Trinitarianism, which very interesting episode about church history. If you are into that kind of thing, you can learn the truth about your beliefs and where they come from, because the understanding of the Trinity that the Catholics have and the Orthodox, especially more so the Orthodox, but they're both wrong especially the Orthodox. They're wrong for many reasons, and part of the reason, a big reason, is the subordinationist history of the church, especially the fathers. This tendency was strong in the second and third century theology. It is evident in theologians like Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Origen, Novatian, Irenaeus. Irenaeus, for example, commenting on Christ's statement, the Father is greater than I, John 14, 28, which, by the way, does not mean that Christ is subordinate like ontologically to the Father. This is it's an authentication of where Christ is coming from. Read it in context. He's trying to tell you, look, I'm doing these works by God. I'm not just creating my own thing here. But anyway, that's a whole other kind of worms. Has no difficulty in considering Christ as inferior to the Father. So what's the point with all this stuff? The point is that the church fathers had many heretical views. They really did. Subordination was declared a heresy by the Council of Nicaea. But then, you know, again, we, I talk about this in the Trinity episode. They compromised in the process. They compromised and came up with monarchical kind of understanding. But regardless, the church fathers had many heretical views that are contrary to the scripture. The church fathers had a lot of commentaries and opinions that were not consistent with scripture. And Christ rebuked the traditions of men that had misinterpreted the word of God, like we saw with that verse in Mark. So what's the point? Well, the point is, you can't rely on church fathers. Stop citing church fathers. Stop going to church fathers and tradition and what, oh, what this person said or what saint so-and-so said. Look at the word of God. It's not the same as the church fathers or their commentaries or their beliefs. In that respect, you're no different than the Talmudic Jews who have like eight books or however many it is, besides the Tanakh, which is the Old Testament, of, oh, Rabbi Shlomo said this, but Rabbi, you know, Gershowitz said, you know, this. So really, you know, how do you know which way? Maybe you can walk this much on a Sabbath and, you know, this way it's not a sin. But if you do that, these are teachings of men rather than convicting the heart and bringing you into a relationship with Christ and with God through trust you're relying on your own cleverness and your own work and, and the teachings of other people to interpret the law for you. The Bible was written in Koine Greek, meaning common language Greek. Common tongue, meaning accessible to all. It's access, The message is simple, man. It's such a simple message, but the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness of the world. Corinthians 118, or Colossians 118. I always confuse those two, but anyway. It's foolishness of the world. It's foolishness because it's so simple, because the world relies on its own works and effort. Now, this is another interesting thing. It's called Exposing the Heresies of the Catholic Church, the Mass. And it's a quote 
it's a it's it's such a perfect quote to wrap this up before we go into John six. In the light from old times, J.C. Rowley explained the theological and spiritual implications and imperfections of the Catholic Mass. So this is a quote, very profound quote, but it really puts everything together. Grant for a moment that the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice and not a sacrament. Grant that every time the words of consecration are used, the natural body and the blood of Christ are present on the communion table under the forms of bread and wine. Grant that everyone who eats that consecrated bread and drinks that consecrated wine does does really eat and drink the natural body and blood of Christ. Grant for a moment these things and then see what momentous consequences result from these premises. Very important. You spoil the blessed doctrine of Christ's finished work when he died on the cross. A sacrifice that needs to be repeated is not a perfect and complete thing. You spoil the priestly office of Christ. If there are priests that can offer an acceptable sacrifice to God besides him, the great high priest is robbed of his glory. Do you remember what we said about the Catholic Encyclopedia? I said it has to result in no glorification. It has to result in a kenosis, which is a shedding of glory. Interesting, isn't it? You spoil the scriptural doctrine of Christian ministry. You exalt sinful men into the position of mediators between God and man. You give to the sacramental elements of bread and wine an honor and veneration they were never meant to receive and produce an idolatry to be abhorred of faithful Christians. Last but not least, you overthrow the true doctrine of Christ's human nature. If the body born of the Virgin Mary can be in more places than one at the same time, meaning the human aspect of Christ, it is not a body like our own. And Jesus was not the last Adam in the truth of our nature. Very, very important points. These are probably the, the sum total of everything against transubstantiation. The last one especially, which we didn't talk about, but if Christ is truly having two natures, the divine nature is present everywhere. That's why he said, where two or more are gathered, there I am. Meaning, spiritual. I'm going to be there. It's not like he just shows up physically. But he has a physical nature, a human nature, a glorified nature that ascended, but nonetheless a physical human nature. If that human nature can somehow be substantially present in the body and blood or in the uh, bread and wine across all these different churches, then he's not a human being like we were, like we are human beings. Do you see the problem? I hope you see the problem because it's a huge problem. And it makes sense, but if you are locked into dogma, you will not see it. But very, very important. So now I want to shift to John 6, and we're, we're going to read through John 6, but first I want to get into all the context for John 6. And the first piece of context is verses concerning blood. Now, there are a lot of verses concerning blood, but I've picked out just a few of them. Genesis 9, verse 4, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Meaning, if you eat any flesh, Genesis 9, with its blood in it, God is going to kill you. That's not, that's a sin. That's a very bad sin. Deuteronomy 12, verse 16. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. So don't eat the blood. Pour it out. Leviticus 17, verses 10 through 11. Laws against eating blood. If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood... I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people, i.e. you will be destroyed. Very serious offense to God to eat blood. Why? Why is it an offense? Let's see, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, 
and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The picture of the blood, which again, everything points to Christ. Christ is the propitiate. He's the reason all of this exists. The cross was predestined. So God made everything point to him. One of the things that points to him is blood. Well, you're not going to eat it and defile that picture because blood is designed to symbolize the atonement for you. So now ask yourself, just from these first three verses in the Old Testament, is God consistent? Yes. Now God says, do not eat the blood. Over and over again, do not eat the blood. It symbolizes something very special. Would that change as a result of the New Testament? Or is there a different possible meaning to John 6? We'll find out. 1 Samuel 14, verses 32 through 33. The people pronounced, or the people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Uh-oh. Let's see what happens. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. So, very big problem to eat with the blood. Acts 15, verses 19 through 20. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from all things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, okay, and from what else? And from what has been strangled and from blood. So eating things with blood, even in the New Testament, so Gentiles that were coming in, that were being converted, let them, you know, don't be, don't burden them with too many things, but show them a couple of important things. Sexual immorality, it's a big one. Things polluted by idols. Don't be dealing in idolatry or eating things that are sacrificed to idols. Don't deal with any of that stuff. From things that have been strangled, because usually that was a sacrificial thing too, kind of like halal is today. And from blood. So even in the New Testament, Gentiles were told, do not eat blood. You're not supposed to do that. Very, very important. But again, most people don't, don't realize that. 1 Corinthians 10 verses uh, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Is the sacrifice of the mass, which result in the kenosis or a reduction of glory, should not be a glorification. Remember, according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, it's not glorifying, shouldn't result in glorification. It's a kenosis. Is that in alignment with what the Bible says? Do whatever you eat or drink to whatever you do. Do all to the glory of God? No. The answer is no. Very clearly so. And now the question is this. If animal blood is a big no-no, human blood, obviously, that's like even more of a no-no. The blood of the only Son of God? That's a yes? Are you... Do you see the problem with, with the sequence of logic going through here that God would never, never ask you to do such a thing? So the question is, what does it mean when Jesus says, drink my blood? Does that mean actually that you need to believe you're drinking his actual blood? Or does it mean something else? Does it mean something else? That's the question of the day. Another context for John 6 is typology. That's very important. Again, we're going to come back to John 6, but I want to build all this stuff so you really understand and appreciate all the things going into it. The first one was laws on blood, Old Testament, 
and the New Testament both said the same thing. All the first Christians were Jews. They would never eat blood. They knew that was against. That's why you'll see in John 6 when Jesus said that, people were like, what What are you talking? How could we eat your blood? God, that's a sin. That's why he said that basically, you know, you can't come to me unless the Father opens your eyes to spiritual things because the ones who left didn't get it. They thought he was actually talking about blood. But anyway, typology is another one. And typology is the study of pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. There's a lot of them. Now, Catholics have their own studies of Mary and Mariology, which is not substantiated whatsoever. So you have to be careful with this because typology is a valid study. It's a very beautiful and interesting study, but it can be used to do a lot of things. So you have to be careful not to be too liberal with it. But nonetheless, if we look at the sacrifices themselves, there's five main ones. There's the grain offering. It was made with frankincense. And that points to Jesus' birth. And also, he's the bread of life. Bethlehem is, is called the house of bread, and he was, he was born there. So, of course, the grain offering relating to bread deals with Jesus. He was born in the house of bread, Bethlehem, and he's the bread of life. Frankincense. All those things relate to, they're painting future pictures of Christ. The peace offering that was made for fellowship, and it represents fellowship with God. Through Christ's offering, one time, you have been reconciled to God. We are, now we have peace with the Lord. The burnt offering, it was a free will type of offering. Jesus freely laid down his life. He chose to do that. That was his choice. That's a profound thing in and of itself to meditate on. You also had the sin offering. Whoever touches the sin offering became holy. You also, the person who had to be forgiven had to kill the sin offering. This is why both the Jews and the Romans had to kill, meaning Gentiles and Jews had to kill Jesus. They both had to have their hands bloodied by that in order for them to be forgiven, the Gentiles and the Jews. But Pope Francis says the Jews didn't kill Jesus. So there you go, man of sin telling you who he is through his words. Because if the Jews didn't kill Jesus, then they cannot be forgiven. Do you see, do you see the evil behind that? But nonetheless, sin offering is another one. The guilt offering is the fifth one. And that came with, basically, it was the only one dealing with restitution and basically paying restitution. And we know that Christ said at the end, it is finished, which means to telestai, meaning paid in full. He paid the debt. He paid the debt that we owed that we couldn't pay physically. He died a physical death so that we could die spiritually and live with him spiritually and physically. But what's the point? Not a single time in scripture was blood ever drunk. Not a single time was any of the sacrifices that were pointing to Christ or the sacrificial system ever, ever about drinking blood. Not a single time. Not a single time was there a shadow or a picture of transubstantiation, meaning that the transformation of God into a physical object that you would consume. Not a single time. Not even remotely close. All the types and shadows that pointed to Christ's work was for a singular sacrifice one time, and that's it. For all time, as a propitiation to be received by faith. In fact, it was always really like that. There was always a sacrifice that you would receive through faith in God, and a priest would do it on your behalf. And as long as you had faith in God and you were obedient, again, you're not justified by works, but you have faith in God, which leads to obedience. The sacrifice is your propitiation. 
the bull, the ram, the goat, but you had to keep sacrificing because they don't have infinite value. So this is the, the thing with Christianity. We have a perfect sacrifice that has infinite value and that is guaranteed for all time. That's what the Bible says. In at least four places, it says that the Holy Spirit that we're given as born-again believers is a guarantee of our inheritance with Christ. Ephesians 1, verses 14 through 18. The guarantee of our inheritance. So, now, the third context I want to offer you is eating and food as metaphors. This is another one we're going to take a look at a lot of things. Again, the Bible's talking about spiritual things. Isaiah 55, verse 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves with rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Now, is the food in this particular passage physical food? Is God saying, come, I've got a buffet. It's going to be great. And if you eat, your soul is going to live. Or is he saying, delight yourself in rich food, i.e. spiritual food, the word of God in the wisdom, in the knowledge that he gives you, in the Holy Spirit. That's rich food. Very, very important. And also notice that hearing is related to eating. Why do you spend your money for that? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. So meaning eating in this particular case is a parallel to listening diligently. It's always been about obedience. Listening diligently is eating. And of course, this is fulfilled in Christ when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then he, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. This entire conversation, which we're going to revisit, is all about spiritual things. It is not talking about physical food and physical eating. But moving on, let's look at the Old Testament. Continue. This is Jeremiah 2, verse 3. Israel has Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. Are we talking like real harvest here or spiritual harvest? All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Everybody who tried to attack Israel or you know take of it in some way incurred guilt. But we're using food as a metaphor here. Do you see the pattern? Jeremiah. Uh, three verses 15. And I will give you shep- and I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. So God is again saying, eat what is good, meaning you're going to eat knowledge and understanding. God will bring up leaders that will feed you with true understanding and knowledge because your soul needs food, soul food. Real soul, real food is soul food. Jeremiah 15. Through six, uh, verse 16, your words were found and I ate them. See, saying he ate like actual parchments. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Your words became a joy and delight to my heart and I ate them. Now, if you are consistent with transubstantiation, you have to read everything I'm reading here with a 
lens, with a physical carnal lens. And you have to believe that Jeremiah is saying to God, God, I ate your, I ate some parchment and man, they were, they were just delicious, which of course is absurd, but that's what you have to do if you're consistent. Now, if you read this spiritually, then you cannot advocate transubstantiation because you have to be consistent. Do you see the problem? I hope you do. Isaiah 3, verse 10, Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. What fruit are we talking about here? Meaning the outcome. They're going to experience and taste the outcome of their deeds. Both the righteous and the wicked. Psalm 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So taking refuge in the Lord is tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Obviously, these are spiritual things. Again, if you read into transubstantiation, you have to read all of these verses literally, and it results in absurdities. So which one's right? The church, the tradition, or the word of God? 1 Peter 2, this, this is kind of like a parallel verse, but it's the New Testament. 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if needed, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So this is citing the previous one in Isaiah, or I'm sorry, the, the psalm that we looked at, Psalm 34. And it also mentions spiritual milk. When you're born again, you're a newborn infant and you're growing. How do you grow? You feed on the word of God. You grow in your relationship to the Lord by eating on what? Knowledge. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come eat. Feast on delicious food of wisdom and, and knowledge. Now let's look at the New Testament. Acts 10 verses 9 through uh, 16. Peter's vision. Now this is actually, I'm not going to read all this, but this is about Peter's vision. Seeing all of these various animals Rise, Peter, kill, and eat, is what God told him. And of course, this was about basically like, look, go and spread the gospel to the, to the nations. They're not unclean. So all these unclean animals that Peter was like shocked that the God would tell him to go eat, obviously he's not telling him to go eat iguanas or anything like that, but rather to go and go into the Gentiles, be with them and spread the gospel. Matthew 4, verse 4, man, it is, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, the same theme, the food that you eat that sustains you is the word of God. That is the true food. This is also a reference to manna, and manna was a type for Christ, which we'll look at in, the, in John 6 when we actually read it. But manna was a type for Christ. Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Food is a metaphor. How are you satisfied? Well, if you believe in Christ, because you hunger to be righteous, because you realize you're guilty, you'll be satisfied. You don't need to keep doing sacraments and sacrifices and attending sacrifices. Matthew 13, verses 34 through 35, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Nothing that he said to the crowds was not in a parable form. Why? Well, because it fulfills a prophecy. Psalm 78, verses 2 through 3. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. This was the prophecy fulfilled in Christ, that he said all things in parables, i.e. spiritual things. So if he's talking to you in parables, 
so that you can see profound realities rather than carnal physical things that are very simple. What does that mean about transubstantiation? It means that it's false. It's a false teaching. John 4, 10 through 14. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, it's the woman at the well, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? <laughs> Are you greater than our father Jacob? You see, the, the people didn't get it at first. This is the whole point. And the Catholic Church still doesn't get it. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, setting up the lesser to the greater. But now comes the greater. For every, But everyone who drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that will, that will now up to here, you're like, well, where's this water? It's magical water. So then he continues as the water that I will give him will become a, in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, now obviously we're talking about spiritual things. So the living water said, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. And, you know, there's a whole woman with the multiple husbands and things like that. But the living water that wells up in a spring of water, i.e. you have a new heart because Christ is working through you, the Holy Spirit's in you, that longs to obey and does good things. This is the living water. It is the, the new covenant. Do you see the, co the common themes? John 4, later in that chapter in verse 24, it says, God is spirit and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. We looked at this previously. I.e., spiritual things, not physical things. We don't worship God in physical forms, through icons, through statues, through parading around objects that you're venerating as supposedly God in those objects. This is paganism. I mean, I hate to say it, but it really is. It'll probably offend a lot of people, but whatever. John 4, verses 31 through 38. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. <laughs> now get this. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? They're clueless. They're clueless. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the work of, to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here is the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now, is he talking about like agricultural stuff? Like, is there some field that, that Jesus maybe had with his apostles and they're talking about that? No. This is a profound statement on the mission and their future mission too that's building off of other people laboring like the prophets and Abraham and everybody else, the fathers. But look at this verse, number 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish this work. That's Christ's food. So Christ is consistently speaking about food and water, liquid, in spiritual terms. This is before John 6, by the way. Um, Romans 8, verses 29 through 30. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. For those he who foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, by the way, an important point, 
He also called in those whom he called. He also justified in those whom he justified. He also glorified. We are being conformed to the image of Christ to do the will of God the Father when we're born again. If that's the case, then if it was for for Christ, the, the food for Christ was to do God's will. That was what fed him. So for us, when we're born again, our food is also to do the will of God. Do you see the parallel? That we're being conformed to Christ's image? Well, what, what did Christ's image look like? Well, look at the Gospels. His food was to do the will of God. And that is what we experience when we partake of Christ in the divine nature. And of course, it says that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3-7. through 7, His divine power has granted us to all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Do you see the important point here about communion? Communion is not how you become partaker of the divine nature. You could be, you could be a, a, a false convert and taking communion all day. You become partakers of the divine nature through the promises. How do you access the promises? By being born again, by becoming a genuine Christian having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful desire. Notice that it doesn't say you become partakers of the divine nature through works, through sacraments, through the Eucharist, through water baptism, which of course Peter has a lot to say about water baptism too. I didn't pull that up, but he has a lot to say about it. That it's not about washing your body with water, but about a genuine conviction of the heart, which again, if you're an infant, can you do that? Are you in alignment with God's word if you believe infant baptism like Augustine? If you don't baptize the infant, he's going to go to hell because he's sinful. You do not know God. Remember what God said? I desire the knowledge of God, not sacrifices. You do not understand that God is merciful. That would never destroy an infant for not being water baptized. Nonsense. That is not the knowledge of God. John 15, 1 through 5, I am the true vine. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Are we talking about real fruits here? Or what are we talking about? Like branches in a garden? Are we talking about being born again in our relationship to Jesus? But he's using food metaphors again. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. There you go. Again, you're clean. The word is cleaning you. Remember when he's going to sprinkle clean water on you in the new covenant? And Jesus says in John 3, you can't, you, nobody can see the kingdom of heaven unless they're born again by water and the spirit, i.e. when God sprinkles clean water on you. Now Jesus, who is God, is saying, I'm, cl- I'm cleaning you. I've already cleaned you. You're already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. I've cleaned you. Do, do you see a pattern? Verse 4, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Obviously, this is not talking about real fruit. It's talking about fruit as a picture of something you can't see, which is your relationship to Jesus. It's a spiritual thing. So all these physical things are designed to be pictures of the real thing. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 through 4, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, And all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. Here we go again. And drank the same spiritual drink. Are we talking about maybe what I think we're talking about? 
for they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, what is he talking about here? Is he talking about that they held the Eucharist in the wilderness? Of course not. They were partakers. They were in the communion with God there through Christ. Of course, it was a different type of situation, but the the picture is the same. These are spiritual things. They ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, i.e. they were sustained by the rock that followed them. Christ sustained them. Very, very important. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For in one spirit we're all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Are you drinking the spirit when you're baptized? No. To drink means to partake of. Like, for example, in Revelation 17 or whatever, in Revelation towards the end where uh, Babylon is judged, and either in the picture where you see she's had a cup of her iniquities and she's drinking out of it, which is rich with blood of the saints, meaning she's partaking of evil. And at the end, when she's judged, what's he going to do? He's going to make Babylon drink the cup of his wrath, full strength all the way. You're going to guzzle that down. Meaning you're going to be judged. You're going to experience full judgment. So to drink something is to partake of something. It doesn't mean literally to drink. Both the apostles and Christ are speaking in spiritual terms. Matthew 16, verses 5 through 12. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. I love this one. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. So he, they interpreted them as literal, like saying, We got to beware of the Pharisees' yeast. What's going on? But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith. He rebuked them. Why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet remember the five? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand? How many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Another rebuke, this time towards not the Pharisees for nullifying God's law, but to the, the disciples for not understanding that you are, that he's speaking about spiritual things, i.e. bread. That's not physical bread, but spiritual bread, the leaven of the Pharisees that's making them puff up. What's that? That's pride. Beware of that leaven that makes your bread dough rise. So, conclusion. Food, bread, eating, all of it's used as as metaphors for spiritual things countless times by God, by the apostles, throughout both Testaments. There was a prophecy of Christ in Psalm 34, I believe, that he would speak in parables and metaphors that was fulfilled, meaning the things that he's speaking is constantly alluding and, and painting spiritual pictures, parables that mean something, they're not just physically interpreted. Everything Christ spoke about was in parables and metaphors. So in one sense that the wicked couldn't understand, the people who were not elect, the people who God wouldn't open their eyes, wouldn't understand. As you'll soon see from John 6, where people left because they didn't get it, which is true. They weren't opened to the truth. And that was the whole point. 
Christ rebuked the apostles for not thinking spiritually and, and for not seeing that he's talking about greater things. Like, you really think I'm that petty to talk about bread? Like, just physical? Like, do you think that's what I'm here to tell you about? This momentous thing, thousands of years of history to lead up to the Messiah who will show up, who's God on earth, who's doing all these great things. You think that I'm talking to you about bread? Like, literal physical bread. Like, what's wrong with you? Don't you remember all the supernatural things that you just witnessed? How did you not perceive that I'm talking to you about bread? This is the thing. So now with all that in mind, if, if you see all this, then it really calls into question John 6 and the, the whole interpretation of transubstantiation. So now let's go to John 6 and just read from verse 22 to verse 71. And you're going to see a lot in this particular segment. I am the bread of life. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the God the Father has set his seal. So he is telling him, listen, you're coming to me because you ate your fill of, of food. You have the wrong motivation for coming to me. You, you, you need to change your heart. This is the new covenant. This is the thing that's constantly being driven at. People are so fleshly minded and Christ is constantly reminding them to think differently. Verse 28, then he said to them, to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So the work of God is for you to believe, which by the way, that's God working through you if you have faith. If you have genuine faith, it's God that gave you the ability because he's working through you. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as, the, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they even cite some scripture to God himself to, to, to kind of see like, oh, see, look how smart we are. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Are we talking about bread here or are we talking about something else? For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. There's a parallel between what the physical thing that happened, which fed the Israelites, and the supernatural thing that's happening through the incarnation, which is going to feed, quote unquote, the whole world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Put it together with all the things that we just read. Is he talking about eating his body and blood? Or is he talking about something much more profound, which is a relationship with God? Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and you do not yet you do not believe. So the issue is belief. It's not anything physical. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Meaning, did the Father give everybody to Christ? 
gosh, this is so important for Catholics and Orthodox. Did the Father give everybody to Christ? No, because in that case, everybody would not have been come, cast out. And as you'll see later, everybody's going to be resurrected that the Father gives to Christ. So obviously the Father did not give everybody to Christ. Election. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now, if, is everybody going to be saved and resurrected? No. That means that the Father couldn't have given everybody to Christ. Very important. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So all this talk about bread transitions into, you need to believe. You don't believe. You're not getting it. So he's getting more direct. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Another condition. Nobody can come to Christ in faith unless the Father does something to you first, i.e. draws you to Christ. If the Father doesn't draw you, you will not come to Christ. But wait a minute. Christ ties that drawing to resurrection, and I will raise him up on the last day. What does that mean? That means that everybody who is drawn to Christ is resurrected. Previously, we saw that everybody who is basically given to Christ by the Father is resurrected. Is everybody going to be resurrected? Well, yes, in some sense, the wicked will be resurrected to be judged, but not glorified. Meaning, not everybody is given, not everybody, not everybody is drawn. So important for the Catholic faith, because the Catholic faith teaches the opposite of this which is that you can lose your salvation, that it's up to you, that you have to do these sacraments, and yada, yada, yada. Whereas the Bible plainly teaches you that it is the work of God manifesting in your life if you are born again. Nobody can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. Verse 45, It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Does everybody hear and learn from the Father? No. Can you come to the Father unless you've heard and learned from the... Or can you come to Jesus unless you've heard and learned from the Father? No. That's the prerequisite. Do you see how all these things line up? Prerequisite, prerequisite meaning God has to do something. It's all on God, not on you. And that's, a, that's a stumbling block for a lot of people, unfortunately. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, I say to you, whoever believes me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. So we're going from belief now back to parables and symbolic language. But what's the point? You eat good food, as we saw in the Old Testament and New Testament also, it's partaking of the knowledge of God. God is right in front of you. Jesus is speaking and saying, I am the bread of life. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Well, how do you eat of it and not die? He just told you. You get resurrected on the day because it is the will of God that everybody who looks on the Son can have eternal life. Meaning, eating the bread is believing in the Son and looking upon the Son. Do you see the connection? 
Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Hmm. Now we start to get into transubstantiation territory. The Jews then dis- disputed them among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Of course they would. Because why? Because there were a lot of laws against blood in the Old Testament, like we just saw. So Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, do you remember about the the true vine abiding in Jesus? Was that talking about physical things or spiritual things, about having a relationship with Jesus? Verse 57, as the living Father has sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Again, spiritual language. What does it mean to feed? It means to believe and partake in Christ's work, receiving Christ's sacrifice as the payment for your sins. That's how you drink that same cup and partake of it and and take up your cross. You're partaking in what Christ did on your behalf. You're crucifying the flesh, and as a result, you are born again and live eternally. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He's telling you over and over again, this is not, the physical thing was a picture of the real thing, dude. It's not like the physical bread. It's a spiritual reality. Jesus said these things in their synagogue, and he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Again, because they had Jewish blood laws, which you saw even in Acts, where Paul was saying, you know, we should advise the Gentiles not to eat blood. They still believe those things. Of course they would. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? I.e., what if you were to see the glory? If you if you can't get these spiritual things, what, what are you going to do when, when I come back and I'm in full glory? What are you going to do then? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Here we go. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life i.e. spiritual, life-giving words, not literal, fleshly words, carnal-minded words. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those who, who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him, i.e. predestined. Judas was never saved. He was predestined to betray Christ. Otherwise, you it wouldn't tell you that. It's not very obvious. First off, the cross was predestined. Everything's predestined. But ultimately, Judas was predestined. Now, if he was predestined to betray Christ and kill himself, that means Judas was never saved to begin with. Because because why? In John 6, earlier we saw, what's the will of the Father? That Jesus loses nobody that the Father gives to him. If Judas was saved, that means he would have been given to Jesus. But wait a minute, Judas killed himself after he betrayed Christ. He wasn't saved. Did Jesus lose? Did Jesus disobey the Father? No, that means that Judas was never saved. He wasn't given to Jesus so that he could betray Jesus. You see the point? And Judas, by the way, is the only one that's described as the son of perdition, which is the name for the future Antichrist power that came after the New Testament, 
with its personal representative, which is a interesting picture if you really understand that Judas was the treasurer, meaning he was in charge of the money, and that Mystery Babylon is very wealthy, and it's a church. Hmm, very interesting. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. There you go. So what's the problem? People are objecting to the saying, and what's Jesus' response? He's like, yeah, God has to open your eyes to these things, otherwise you're going to interpret it wrongly. See the point? So important to read things in context. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. There you go, because they weren't granted by God to come to Christ. Maybe not at that time, maybe later, but ultimately they weren't granted by God to see the things that they should have seen. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go as well? Simon says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Words of eternal life. Not rituals or physical things. And we, we, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We have believed faith. Jesus answered him, did I not choose you, the twelve? There you go. Election. And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus chose everything, both people who would be in his companionship, who would be saved, and people who would not be saved. Election by God. God is always doing the choosing. But nonetheless, what do we take from this? Well, again, believing is eating, spiritual food, the flesh is no help at all, the disciples left because they thought, oh my gosh, this, this guy's crazy. This is foolishness. He's asking us to eat blood and, and, and eat his body. Obviously, that's going to be a sin to God. We're not going to do that. They weren't open to the idea because God has to open your mind, open your eyes, teach you. You have to hear from the Father. You have to be drawn. You have to be granted. Christ is saying over and over again, the prerequisite for you to understand this is to be born again. The Spirit has to open your eyes to these things. That's why he spoke in parables. It's phenomenal, really. And, of course, Jesus also realized that they were confused by what he was saying, and he addresses that. So the, the conclusion of John 6 is this. Clearly, he's speaking in metaphor. Clearly, he's not talking about transubstantiation. Clearly, he's not talking about physical things. The bread of life relates to the table of showbread, the manna, the Ark of the Covenant, all these different things that were important pictures of Christ's ministry. If you ignore typology in the Old Testament as a way that's pointing to something spiritual and you read things literally, you're going to get lost. Now, this also, this chapter also proves election and reprobation, all these things that we talked about. They're very reformed Baptist or um, Protestant belief. I mean, some Baptists are not, you know, believing these things, but ultimately Protestant beliefs that were the the hinging foundation of the of the gospel during the Reformation, because they rejected being saved by works or by effort or by sacraments or all these different things, because the Bible clearly teaches that we are saved by God's work, both through what Christ did and through the triune God, the the Holy Spirit's sanctifying you. He's the guarantee of your inheritance. The Father is drawing you and granting you and teaching you in order to come to Christ. It is the triune God as a whole that is working on your behalf before time. And obviously within time, whenever it's appointed for you to, to come to faith, to give you the second birth. Nobody can come to Christ unless a prerequisite is fulfilled. 
which is you can solve over many prerequisites. Now, there's an objection to this, and this is in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 through 21, where Paul is saying, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. This is an important statement. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Is he talking about physical cups here? Like there's a demonic looking cup that's like, you know, super evil looking with a claw. And then there's like a golden cup that's the cup of the Lord. Or is this a spiritual description of participation? Well, he tells you, next sentence, you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. This is, a, this is a statement on participation. What are you participating in? You cannot serve two masters. Remember Jesus said that between, you know, mammon and uh, God? You can't serve two masters. Well, Paul is saying the same thing here. You can't serve two masters. And how he's portraying that is through spiritual language using food as a metaphor. Because food is something very intrinsic to humanity. We participate. We consume. We put it into ourselves. We participate with others. You're breaking bread with others. So it's not talking about the Eucharist or transubstantiation. It's talking about participating. When you're in, the Lord's table is synonymous with the kingdom of God, with being born again, with the church, with the house of God, the temple. All these things are a picture of the communion we have with Christ when we are born again. So that is not talking about transubstantiation. Now, another important thing is the Last Supper as a symbolic act and why it's symbolic. So we want to address that too, because that is the other linchpin to transubstantiation. In Mark 14, verses 22 to 24. As they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke and gave it to them and said, take this as my, take this as my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So this, these couple of verses are intended by Catholics to mean that this is a signal or a symbol of transubstantiation. But the question is, is this spiritual or is he talking about actual physical realities that are happening? Well, there's a couple points I want to present to you. And the first one is that Christ is spiritually present already. Matt, we mentioned this verse a while ago, but it's Matthew 18, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Christ is present already in the fellowship that we have with each other, with him. You do not need transubstantiation. Like that article of the Orthodox um, site, which talked about koinonia being the foundation of Christian life. Absolutely. But what does koinonia mean? It means the communion we have with each other and through Christ through this new covenant, through this new reality. Once you're born again, you have immediate fellowship with other born-again believers. And of course, with Christ too, you, you are partaker in the divine nature. This is what the Bible teaches very clearly. Now, another point is, is that the natural understanding of what's going on is that it is representative. If I brought you into my house and I showed you a picture of my family and I picked it up and I said, look, this is my family. 
would you if if I was speaking as if this was actually my physical family in this box, you would say that I was insane. But nobody really thinks like that unless they're insane. You would say, oh, well, oh, got it. Yeah, oh, cool. That's, that's a nice picture. Where were you at? Obviously, I'm pointing to a representation. That is the natural reading of the text. So when Christ is saying, this is my body, obviously he has his body. So he is making a representation, which is very clear if you read practically everything else that Christ has said, because it's all spiritual. Now, there's also parallelism, which is important. When he says... If the, if so, if the body is bread, he's equating those two, then the cup is the covenant. See the important thing? Now, the important, if we want to be consistent, again, if you're reading things literally, you have to be consistent. And if you're reading things in this particular passage as literal, then you have to say that the cup is the covenant. Obviously, the, the cup is not the covenant, but a symbol of the covenant. But if it were, if the body is literal, as transubstantiationist is if that even is a word, but as Catholics believe or Orthodox believe, if the body's literal, then the covenant must also be literally the cup. But the cup's been destroyed a very long time ago. So does that mean that the covenant has been destroyed? Obviously not. And this is what happens when you take things literally and you put them in such a forced context, divorcing them from their contextual meaning and from their situational meaning. There must be a better explanation, and that's because this is a spiritual thing. Now, in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, we, we again see this communion of the fellowship of believers every day breaking bread. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. Before you think that's Eucharist or anything like that, you got to keep reading. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were together. They had fellowship. They had things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to all as any had need. So they had an amazing early church. After Pentecost, this was an amazing situation. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, i.e. every single day, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Meaning, those who were being saved were added by who? God. Not their efforts, not baptism, not the Eucharist, not sacraments, but God. Just like we see consistently throughout the Bible. A synergistic gospel runs into serious problems because you're always going to run into continuous conflict with the fact that God is the one doing the work. But nonetheless, they're breaking bread every day. This is a statement of communion. This is a statement of a community that was extremely tightly knit. They had such brotherly love for each other because the Holy Spirit had just been poured out. This is the beginning of the church. This is koinonia. This is the point. This is the communion that we are invited to with one another. And of course, today in a digital age, in a separated world, it's uh, very, very far from that most of the time, unfortunately. The Last Supper is symbolic, very clearly show, very clearly so. Now, another thing that's important is that the temple is spiritual. And this is kind of one of the final point, points I want to leave you with as we start to wrap this up, is that the temple is a spiritual reality. And we're going to look at this. I talk about this in greater detail in episode six of my End Times series. So go check that out if that's news to you. 
that the temple is spiritual, then go check it out. Because I document that in my end time series, and there are a lot of consequences to that belief. And having the right belief or the wrong belief, which is that the temple is not spiritual. But let's see, Paul believed the temple was spiritual. Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles. Now, is he talking about like the apostles' bones and skulls? Or is he talking about a spiritual foundation? And the prophets and Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The temple is a spiritual reality, according to Paul. John, uh, Revelation 3, verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Now, is Jesus saying that he's going to literally put you as a pillar, just stand there for eternity, and he's going to write his name on you? No. This is a spiritual reality that's being painted, which is a communion, a special part of a special communion as you are a special part of God's temple, as the structure, the spiritual structure that's being built. Through the kingdom, which is, again, the Lord's table, house of God, the body of Christ. All these things are the same thing. It's koinonia. Peter, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. There it is again. Not physical sacrifices every Sunday acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter believed the temple was spiritual. And again, I go into great detail in all this in my end time series, because there's many implications. But the conclusion is this. The temple is spiritual, according to the apostles, and according to Christ. The temple is the body of Christ, the church, the Lord's table, the kingdom, koinonia, fellowship, all these things are the same thing. Now here's the question. If the body of Christ is spiritual, can you eat it? Is, is this what God is really telling you? That you can eat his body? Or is this eating, partaking of the body of Christ, being part of this koinonia, this communion that we have with God and with each other? God is present in fellowship, but not by some ritual. And God is spirit and, presented in, and present in spirit and in truth, not physically manifest in object. Remember, there's the two natures. The human nature is limited in space and time. It has to be that way. Otherwise, Christ is, you're rejecting one of the foundational principles of the incarnation, which again, if you believe in transubstantiation, you are rejecting the foundational principle of the incarnation, that Christ has two natures. The physical nature cannot be present everywhere. His spiritual nature is absolutely but he's also got a physical nature, and that is limited by space and time. He's in one place at a singular time. When he returns, he's going to be on earth forever. So the correct way, I want to, I want to give you a couple things as we finish this up. I want to give you a couple thoughts to consider on how the correct understanding of communion is. Well, first and foremost, it's fellow, is fellowship. Every time you break bread with a believer, a born-again believer, and you share that moment like you saw in Acts, those are tender moments with believers. That's what we're invited to. Every time you eat, give grace to God. Some people like to celebrate Passover. It's not required, but ultimately that can be a special thing to remember that, that event. 
I, I like to do that just, just to remind myself that Christ was the sacrifice. Now, you don't have to do that. I don't believe you need to do that. Some people are all about celebrating the feast. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you can do that in remembrance of Christ. Because also, every time you sit down and break bread with other people or you drink wine, you should be mindful of the, the fact that the, the food you're about to ingest, which is sustaining you, is really a picture of the real food that you have in Christ that's sustaining you forever. And the sacrifice that was necessary for you to live forever in Christ. This is what these things are designed. It's designed to take regular physical things and, and give them such spiritual significance. Food is what sustains us, so we should associate God as the provider of both physical and spiritual sustenance. Christ came to fulfill all things, meaning to make them full of meaning, meaning and, and satisfaction. So we know that spiritual uh, metaphors are used for food in both Testaments, and God is our sustenance. Having a relationship with him spiritually is what really matters. This is what it's all about. This is how to correctly view these words. Because first and foremost, you cannot partake in the divine nature. You can't partake in the Lord's table or the kingdom of God or the body of Christ or the church, whatever you want to call it, unless you're born again. How are you born again? You are born again by crucifying the flesh, repentance and faith. When you do that, you die to sin, you experience the death, spiritually the Christ experience on the cross, and you live, you have that spiritual resurrection, the first resurrection that John sees in Revelation 20. The first resurrection is the spiritual birth. And of course, the final fullest meaning of that is the actual physical transformation of our bodies. But when we're born again, we experience a resurrection of sorts. We are transformed. Now, I want to do a little bit on Lutheranism. I know this has been long, so if you're still here, if you check back, then congratulations, you are hardcore, and you've probably learned quite a lot. But I want to just do a little quick thing on Lutheranism, Lutheranism, because Lutherans believe in transubstantiation. And it's, it's important to understand what their view is and, and why Lutherans are still you know, they're, they're barking up the wrong tree with this stuff, and, and they're getting worse and worse because they signed a joint declaration of justification with the Catholic Church. But Lutherans have a belief on transubstantiation, but it's not exactly quite like Catholics. This is a this is a article from uh, the same kind of website that we looked at definition up, but Luther on the subject of transubstantiation. At the end of the year 1519, Luther still maintained the doctrine of transubstantiation intact, Remember, Luther was a Catholic, so he came from Catholicism. In his Ein sermon, I'm not going to read that, it's a long German name, he teaches that there is a change of substance of the bread and wine, but emphasizes that it is symbolical of our union with the spiritual body of Christ. This change must be interpreted not only as sacramentally, but spiritually, and is aimed at the change of the natural man by a common life with Christ. So he was more spiritual about it at first, but he was, he vacillated, you'll see here. The sacramental change finds its fulfillment in the incorporation into Christ and fellowship with all Christians. True, in some sense. However, all further considerations of just how the presence of Christ comes about are purposely omitted by Luther. This indicates a certain uneasiness in the use of the doctrine of transubstantiation, which, as a matter of fact, formally deals with the problem of how Christ becomes really present under Eucharistic species. It was not long before Luther would lose all patience with the dogma, just a few months later, he attacked it in another long German name, the third of so-called the great 
Reformation treatises. The second captivity is the doctrine of transubstantiation, which the Roman Church imposes as a matter of fact. Luther rejects it because he, it lacks the support of Scripture. True. Hopefully you've learned that by now. Of an approved revelation or end of reason. Nevertheless, he allows others to hold this teaching, so he was okay if you were believing in it. I'm not okay if you believe in it. I think you should abandon this teaching because of its implications, as we have so far proved, hopefully. If they wish, as long as they realize that it is not imposed by revelation. For himself, the literal sense of scripture imposes the belief that the species do not change. This was the teaching of the church until Aristotelian philosophy imposed itself on the Christian faith, which came through people like Augustine and such and such. Furthermore, he argues there is no peril of idolatry in the fact that the substance of bread remains because it is Christ that is adored and not the bread. So he was, you see, Luther's a real interesting case because he straddles between one and the other. He's not sure, and you'll see that with, with what they believe. To show the reasonableness of his stand against transubstantiation, Luther appeals to an example. Fire and iron, two different substances, are so mingled in red-hot iron that every part of it is both fire and iron. Why may not the glorious body of Christ much more be in every part of the substance of the bread? He sees a further analogy in the hypostatic union. The divinity is not present under the accidents of the human nature in Christ. One can actually say, hic homo es Deus, hic Deus es homo, this uh, man is God and this God is man. So also in the case of the sacrament, it is not necessarily transubstantiation take place in order that Christ become present. Now, there's a finicky philosophical way that Luther gets around this, and we'll, we'll break it down. The, quote, how of the presence remains an open question, and he will not condemn those who wish to hold to transubstantiation, as long as they do not claim that it is an article of faith. His whole preoccupation is with the fact of the real presence which comes about virtu verborum, by virtute verborum, by, by words, since the divine work cannot be completely understood. Doctrine of Ubiquity When Luther saw Zwingli a further threat to the true doctrine of the real presence, he replied in a number of sermons issued under the title Sermon von, another long German name. Man, Germans love their long German names, dude. Here he stresses the doctrine of ubiquity, which, as Brilioth says, was to become the cornerstone of Luther's Eucharistic teaching. So after a while, he kind of ping-ponged back and forth, and he figured out, okay, how can I get around this by, while still holding on to this idea? In these works, Luther rejects the idea of God dwelling in a place. God the Creator is everywhere, but Christ is God, so he is everywhere. Moreover, wherever Christ is as God, he is also there as man. Not true. That's not true. This is, this is the problem that Luther made. We'll break it down in a second. Hence, his body must be present everywhere and so in the Eucharist. The uniqueness of Christ's bodily presence in the Eucharist stems from the purpose for which he is present there. So, the communicato idiomatum, the communication of the natures, applies, the, applies to the unity of the two natures in such a way that what is said of one nature applies to the other. Now, if you don't understand any of this, I'll explain it in just a second, so don't worry. The omnipresence of Christ becomes the basic argument against the enthusiasts, and likewise the crowning argument against transubstantiation. Christ is, Christ is in the elements long before they were put on the altar, for the Son has imparted the attribute of omnipresence to his human nature. This is not true. This is a Lutheran idea, which is the communication of attributes, which again, it's a philosophical conjecture, meaning Christ has two natures, human nature, God nature. 
And these two, you know, communicate. And it's, it's, I don't recommend learning or trying to study this topic unless you really want to, you know, kind of learn about it. But it's, it's a very confusing understanding because ultimately what he's saying is, which is what we just read, that wherever Christ is spiritually there, his physical body is also because that's communicated somehow. But that's not respecting the two natures of Christ. If you understand the incarnation, where there's a separate, there, there's human nature, I have to use my words carefully here, human nature and divine nature. They're, they're completely intertwined in Christ. He is one person, two natures. However, that doesn't mean that the physical person, the physical body of Christ is omnipresent because it's a physical body. It has to be present in one place at one time. That's why he ascended to heaven while he's ruling spiritually. Of course, he's present spiritually everywhere through the Holy Spirit. God is spirit. I worship him in spirit and truth. But the physical nature of Christ is not omnipresent. But Luther thought that, well, there's a communication of attributes. And so you don't need transubstantiation because, you know, he's already there. He's already, you know, physically present there in you know, through the communication of attributes. It's really quite confusing. It's just philosophical gymnastics, ultimately, to justify transubstantiation. But this is the three points, basically, that Luther brought up. Transubstantiation is not in accord with the scriptures. True. Very true. This dogma is a philosophical explanation based on Aristotelian metaphysics. It's also true. Number three, it is unnecessary in the view of the analogy with the hypostatic union and the omnipresence of the humanity of Christ. This is where Luther makes a mistake. The first two are right, and he should have just rejected it because it's not true. But because he's brought up Catholic and he, you know, he saw some value in it emotionally, I'm sure, he's trying to find a way to justify it. And he did that through a compromise, an equivocation on the um, nature of Christ, basically on, on the incarnation, the mystery of the incarnation. Now, this is from... Stack exchange is a Christianity. What is the Lutheran doctrine of consubstantiation? And how does it differ from transubstantiation in a more general Protestant sacramental view? Lutheran consubstantiation seems to straddle transubstantiation and general sacramental Protestantism in a way that makes it difficult to tell where the actual distinctions are. This is true. It's really, it's just philosophical gymnastics, what the Lutherans believe. And it's to their fault because what's going to happen is it's just prepping them to unite with the Mother Church. And you will see, I don't mean that lightly. The authentic Lutheran term for their own belief is sacramental union, even if consubstantiation, by analogy to the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, might be a helpful descriptor. Let's see what the Lutherans believe. The Lutherans taught that it was necessary to distribute both species in the administration of the sacrament, i.e. both bread and wine, as compared to the uh, just bread by the Catholics. They rejected the Catholic belief that the Mass was a true sacrifice that benefited to the living and the dead, which, by the way, we didn't even mention this part, benefits the living and the dead. And the lit liturgy, by the way, the same thing, because you believe that you can do something for the dead, which is, which is you know, heretical. It's, it's not what the Bible teaches you. That nothing can change after you've died. If, you die. if you've died and rejected Christ, then you were never saved to begin with. Never written in the Book of Life. But anyway... Remember that the Lutherans also rejected purgatory and indulgences. So, some good things. They rejected the Catholic practices such as reser reservation of the sacrament, whether for the sick or the later, later masses, and processions. 
saying that Christ in such cases is not present, their dictum being nihil habit, I don't know what this means in Latin, but anyway, and implying, as you noted, that these practices are idolatrous. So these processions of the monstrance where they're taking the Eucharist and and parading it around, I mean, these things are idolatrous. They really are. And again, I'm not trying to be offensive, but the truth is going to be offensive. Finally, probably most significant while affirming that Christ is truly and substantially present, which is what was written earlier in the Augsburg Confession, which by the Protestants, by the way, they taught that the bread remained true bread and substance not merely an accident and was sacramentally united to the substance of body of Christ. Whereas the Catholic teaching repeated at the Council of Trent is that the substance bread and wine is converted into the substance of Christ's body and blood from the formula of Concord. So we read these things. We, we read the Council of Trent. We read the Orthodox views on as well. Even as many eminent ancient teachers as Justin, Cyprian, Augustine, Leo, Gelasius, Chrysostom, and others use this simile concerning the words of Christ's testament, this is my body and just as in Christ two distinct unchanged natures are inseparably united. That's why I said I got to use my words carefully because I don't mean the, the natures are separate by any means. They're, they're inseparably united. But it's a mystery. You can't say that Christ's physical body is omnipresent. That's not a property of his human body. If it was, then he wasn't human in the way that the Bible says that he became human so that he could take on sin as a human being, as our representative. But anyway, moving on. So in the Holy Supper, the two substances, the natural bread and the natural, true natural body of Christ, are present together here upon earth in the appointed administration of the sacrament. So again, this is where... This is where they get they get tied up with this whole communication of attributes. If you stick with the basic teaching of the incarnation, two natures, one person, the physical nature is limited by space and time. Not that he's he's immortal, but he's in one place at one time. That's a law of the universe. The, the spiritual nature, not limited, omnipresent. So this is a very important thing. You cannot justify transubstantiation, but they're trying to while also rejecting some things. But this is the problem. In 1999, I believe it's 1999, the Joint Declaration of Doctrine of Justification is a document created and agreed to by the Catholic Church and the Lutheran World Federation as a result of the Catholic-Lutheran Dialogue. And if you've watched any of my news updates, you know that that's the Pope's favorite word these days. It states that the churches now share a common understanding of our justification by God's grace through faith in Christ. How can you possibly share a common understanding when one church is teaching you that the Eucharist is necessary for salvation, that the sacraments are necessary for salvation, in complete rebellion to what the Bible says that justification is by faith, that there's a once-for-all sacrifice, and that's it. How can you possibly sign a joint declaration? one of the, the churches that was founded by the main reformers. And of course, we know that this is coming to the end. That's why I said that this is the end times, man. We are living at the end of the end. June 19th, 2016, is the Reformation over? Late Tony Palm, The late Tony Palmer replied in the affirmative, alluding to the joint declaration, which we just read, by the Lutheran World Federation, the Roman Catholic Church, he openly proclaimed to the enthusiastic gathering at Kenneth Copeland's. By the way, if you know anything about Kenneth Copeland, why is the Lutheran main pastor there breaking bread with this apostate heretic? That Luther's protest is over. 
asked Palmer, if there is no more protest, how can there be a Protestant church? Maybe now we're all Catholics again. 1999 for Palmer marked the end of the Reformation. And Palmer was probably either bribed by Jesuits or a Jesuit operative. Because this is what's happening, folks. We are moving towards a one-world religion. Now, again, Luther was a Catholic priest, and he never let go of that tradition. He had conflicts about it, obviously. You can tell that he kind of vacillated. At first he was okay with it, and he's like, oh, well, you know, I don't really believe in it, but you can you can do it if you want to. Then he was against it, but then he tried to find a way to justify it. He's very confused. And the Lutheran idea of the communication of attributes is kind of a way to justify it, but it's a really, it goes against the incarnation. So Lutherans, you're wrong about this. You really are. The, the communication of attributes is, I don't even want to get into that. It's a whole other can of worms, and we've been here quite a while. But listen, Christ has a human nature. It's present in one place and one time. He has a divine nature present everywhere. That's a mystery. How does that work? He's a unique being. Luther's view goes against the Council of Chalcedon. And Lutherans already have a compromised situation with the transubstantiation belief. Now they've signed a joint declaration on faith. One of their main ministers, who's now passed away, was breaking bread with a heretic apostate, Kenneth Copeland, and saying the protest is over. This is all moving towards what the Bible tells you, that the kings of the earth will give their power to the woman riding the base. And the woman, I'm sorry to say Catholics, is the Catholic Church. The Bible tells you to get out of her so you do not share in her plagues and share in her sins. Come out, of, come out of her, my people. This is Revelation 18, 4. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. If you are unsure about the identity of Mystery Babylon, I have countless pieces of content. Go check them out. Watch my end time series. You'll learn the truth there. But you must leave institutionalized religion. God warned us about a counterfeit Christianity that would arise. You must leave this. Get out of it while you can. The future is one world religion, and it's going to be a false Christian nationalist golden age. I've talked about it plenty of times. If this is news to you, then check out my website. I have a whole Christian nationalist thing on there for Christian nationalism and end time series and everything else that I usually talk about. So take this as a warning sign. I hope that you've learned something today. Take it as a warning sign because this system the Bible tells you will demand worship as and obedience in conflict with obeying God. And many will be deceived thinking, thinking that it's a good thing. That's what the Bible tells you. So will this be part of it? I don't know. But certainly people have been burned at the stake for not bowing down to the Catholic Church, for Sunday worship, for transubstantiation, for all these various things. The Catholic system has said that if you deny its teachings, you're a heretic. You're anathema. How have they punished heretics in the past? Well, by burning them at the stake. And if you know your history, and if you know what the Bible warns you at the end, it's not a very unreasonable thing to think that at some point in the future, history will repeat itself. The Catholic Church has killed hundreds of thousands of people for not bowing down to its authority. Bloody history. But most people aren't aware of that. And if you're Catholic, you for sure haven't been made aware of that. Or if you have been made aware of that, you've probably been made aware in such a way that the Catholic Church seems justified. Because history is written by the winners. So learn your history. 
Learn your Bible and cling close to the Lord. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the true bread that comes from heaven. (laughs) 